conspiracy theory and the paranormal meet. And now, we join the show already in progress with your hosts, Adam, Seraphiel, and Rob. Welcome, guys, to Conspiranormal. We're going to do a type of uh, Strange Familiars type of opening here. Also, welcome to Strange Familiars. Let's yeah, yeah, we're doing another swap cast tonight, Sergio, with uh, Timothy Renner, our good friend, our good buddy from uh, Pennsylvania, and uh, we're going to talk about just some things that we talked about on the show, and we'll talk about some things that Tim has talked about on his show, and we'll kind of just I'm I'm hoping that we can kind of dig deep on some some subjects here, but uh, Tim, welcome back to Conspiranormal, man. Out. You there? Yeah, we're here. Welcome back to Conspira okay. Normal. Thanks for having me, guys. Always uh, glad to be here. Yeah, it's always good to have you. And I guess this will be our inaugural time on Strange Familiars, I guess. Yeah, right? Cool. Yeah. 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 Why haven't we done that before? <laughs> <laughs> we just, Howdy, folks. <laughs> we just, uh, I don't know. I don't, I, I, the thing is, though, like with Strange Familiars, people come on there and they're always sharing this, like these really amazing stories. And I just don't have any really amazing stories. Like all yeah. my stories are kind of from from childhood, basically. I don't have anything that's really in my adult life, you know, that I want to say that, you know, that I, I mean, I had an experience when I was a kid. But other than that, you know, I don't really haven't really had anything. As, well, do as far I know as, that? Do I know that story? You, I don't know. You might. I'm, um, I'm, I'm not. Uh, I'm not. I'm, I'm drawing a blank. So okay. Well, I guess, I guess I'll go ahead and tell. God, it. I got to hear this again. Yeah, you got to hear it again. So, when I was seven, I want to say. Okay, so the background of the story is, you know, I'm living in Nashville now. I'm from Chattanooga, and when my dad. I guess he kind of, you know, he got married to my mom and everything, and they he moved into my grandparents' house, which was the same house that he grew up in, okay? Mm-hmm. And when... So I grew up in the same house he grew up in until about, like, when I was about nine years old. And one night, it was about... I man, I can't even tell you, tell you what time it was. It had to have been past midnight. I woke up and I look over in the corner, and there's like this old lady standing in the corner, right? Mm-hmm. And I can say that like it freaked me out. But the thing was that was interesting about it that I remember the most was not necessarily that I saw her, but that I kind of like laid back down and went to sleep. Yeah. And I had this weird dream where I was with this same lady and there was like an old man in the bathtub. Like, that's the dream that I had. Okay. And it was weird. And then like, there was like this dream of like my, my grandparents house burning down or something. And I woke and the next thing I know I'm, I'm waking up. Right. So in, to me as a child, even I thought I was having this bad dream. Okay. And Flash forward to about seven years later, I'm about 14 years old, I'm with my mom, 
and my aunt at my aunt's house. And this is my father's sister. Okay. Mm-hmm. So she grew up in that house. And my mom was telling her an experience that she had. And they were talking about how, like, that house was haunted, you know. And she says that, my aunt says, like, well, when I was little, I looked into your father and your uncle's room, which was later my room, about probably 30 years later or so. And I saw this old lady standing in the corner. So it was like this validation. And I lived and looked at her and I was like, oh, you know, that's... That's my I, that's my story. That's what I saw, you know. Wow. And when I started listening to a lot of these podcasts and you know, like where did the road go, and doing my own, I started to see to hear this phenomenon about people falling asleep after one of these encounters, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. the biggest one for me that started me like really looking into that was Mike Cullen's encounter with the three figures that I guess that he. I guess sort of describes as aliens or like a precursor to an alien abduction kind of kind of event, but that he yeah, just he looked, he looked out his window and saw him coming towards right, him, right, and right, then just said yeah. time, time to go to sleep. Yeah, the three figures, and he just leans back over and goes back to bed. And this is something that I've heard like on your show, Where Did the Road Go, my show, several mm-hmm. times with a lot of people is like you know I saw this, I had this weird experience, and I just went right back to bed. And I can't help but think that there is some kind of connection, almost like to an altered state of consciousness in a way, that there is a dreamlike quality to some of these experiences, although that doesn't necessarily, that almost sounds like you're just explaining it away. Yeah. But I think that these, these entities or whatever, that they can kind of communicate to us through that, or that we may be more open possibly coming out of a out of a sleep state so my mother's experience that she had in that house was was kind of similar and that she said that she woke up and so she was in between you know the kind of the sleep and the waking state she woke up she goes into the kitchen she sees this little boy sitting on on the kitchen floor Right. Mm -hmm. She thinks it's me. So she says, I'm probably about four or five years old at this point. She says, you know, hey, Adam, what are you doing up? Why are you up? And uh, she reaches out to kind of like reach out to this child and it disappears right in front of her. Mm. And oddly enough, you know, she always kind of explained that away as being, well, maybe I was in between waking and dreaming and all right. that, but now when I look at that and I think about that kind of state that's bit somebody may be in, it may be more possible that you experience these type of entities or the other or whatever it is when you are in that state because that's essentially an altered state of consciousness. Yeah. Oh yeah. I think that's part of it. I don't I don't know if we're going out of body maybe instead of dreaming. Like that's that's kind of an idea I've been playing with lately. Like uh, my own, you know, quote unquote abduction experiences. I always say like, yeah, maybe I was out of body because it didn't feel dreamlike at all to me. I was, I felt right. entirely awake. Some really almost more real than reality in a way. Very very like focused, 
<laughs> for the times I was awake. And then I kept going back to sleep and waking up. And I was angry. I was I was as mad as I've ever been in my life. I was full of adrenaline, uh, and I just kept going back to sleep. Well, we've never we've never had you actually. I mean, I've heard you tell this story, but we've never actually talked about this on this show. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure, you know, you know, strange familiars, you've talked about it, but just for our audience, you know, can you kind of go to what yeah. had happened there? And I know that you know this was something that you were reluctant to talk about for a long time. Yeah, I didn't. It was actually Mike Clellan who got me talking about this stuff. Um, I think I was on Where to the Rogo with him, and he's like, Nate, yeah, you have to tell your own stories. You can't just document other people. It's, mm. it's not, I, I forget the, exactly how he worded it, but essentially it was like, it's not really fair for you to, to do that. And uh, so I credit Mike with getting me to talk about this stuff. Um, yeah, so um, – Boy, it's it's like a spider web. It's a really really tangled web to try to tell this stuff. Yeah. Um, and I've told it a million times on Strange Familiar. So I'm sorry, everybody. You're gonna hear it again. Uh, maybe there's some new listeners though, since we're we are on new platforms since we went with Red Circle. Right. So they, they've mm-hmm. got us on a couple new platforms. So maybe we got some new listeners there that haven't heard it. Um, my earliest memory, and I I never not my earliest, but one of my earliest memories. Uh. And I never thought of this as abduction stuff until I started writing this stuff down and I was looking back on it. I would wake up when I was a kid. I want to say like six, eight years old in that range. This is a recurring dream, I thought. And uh, at the time, I had decided that there were witches in my house. And I wrote, mm. I read a lot of uh, books. There's a series called Man, Myth and Magic, which has a lot of stuff about black magic and which is Sabbath and stuff like that. And it. it's like an encyclopedia series. I By get out the of way, life. my library had that when I was a kid and like that scared the crap out of me. Right. Totally. Yeah. Right now I would, I would get one volume out every time. It was this little tiny library <laughs> we would go to from the farm. It was like, seriously, it was about maybe, maybe 10 by 20 feet, the entire little library. And that's one of the things they had. Yeah. They so were I, in the reference checks section. So you couldn't check them out. Oh, I could check them. Uh, they could check them out at this one. I would check one out. Every week, and then you know A to Z, and then start over again. You know, I I loved them, but yeah, they were terrifying. <laughs> but uh, in any case, um, I don't know if it was because of that, because of all the witchcraft stuff they had in there. But I decided there were three witches in my house, and what it was is, I'd wake up. It was earlier than the rest of the family was up. I'm the youngest of six kids, so there was eight people in the house with my mom and my dad, and I could hear. Often, you know, I would know if anybody was up because usually my dad was the first one up and I could hear him down in the kitchen, my mom making breakfast and stuff like that. And I could tell nobody was up because I wasn't hearing anything but these voices that I couldn't understand. It's, they were speaking some language I couldn't understand. Like I said, I decided they were witches. They were having some kind of witches Sabbath and I had to be very, very quiet. That's all I knew. I, they couldn't know I was awake. Hmm. And then, uh, you know, so that was a recurring dream. I had, you know, like I said, I'm guessing between ages like six and eight in that area. Didn't think about that as related to any of this stuff until much, much later. I'm in college. I am staying in the basement of a house. There's a whole family that lives upstairs. And I start having these uh, recurring dreams where I wake up and I think there's, there's people outside walking around the house. I can hear them talking and stuff. And I would say, you know, go up to to upstairs and say, you know, hey, there's people walking around the house at night. 
and I, I can hear them. I can hear their voices. They're, they're, they're walking up, you know, and, uh, they said, well, I haven't heard anything. You know, I said, well, just, you know, I'm just letting you know, just, you know, in case they're up to no good, there's people out there. Uh, just happened several times, you know, then I started waking up and having the feeling that someone was in the room with me and, uh, very typical, I guess, kind of sleep paralysis stuff. But it, it happened so many times that I ended up moving my bedroom to an interior room. So there were no windows because I thought it was these people outside, like getting into my head, getting into my dreams. Well, then, you know, I don't know how many other times it happened, but the really intense one I had, I woke up and there was these three guys standing next to my bed and they were all in surgical uniforms, mm. but like, like 1930s style kind of like old, you know, buttons up the side and like cloth masks and stuff. And, uh, they weren't, you know, I didn't put it together at the time, but they, you know, they weren't that tall cause they weren't bending over. They were just there, you know, they, their, their chests were level with mine. And I'm, you know, when I'm laying in bed basically, and they're doing something and I can't tell what they're doing. Um, but I was very upset. I was very, very angry. And I kept sort of thinking I couldn't speak. I couldn't move. I was trying to scream. I couldn't. And I, I remember kind of thinking like, you can't do this. I want to say you don't have the right, but I know, I know Whitley Strieber, whose books I've never read. I know somewhere he said something like that. And I wonder, I've heard the story before. Yeah, there's something similar there, yeah. Yeah, and I wonder if I've sort of interpreted, you know, kind of taken that. But I I didn't hear mine speak. I heard no words in my head, but it was very much like a mental brush off. Like, poof, like you don't matter. It doesn't matter that you're protesting in any way. We don't care. Dang. And um, so I kept waking up and falling asleep several times. I I, I want to say three, four times. I'm, you know, I, I nod out and I wake up and they're still there. And uh, finally, I'm able to move. I wake up. I throw a punch, like a backhanded punch in that direction, screaming at the top of my lungs. And there's nothing there. And it's morning, you know, very, very early morning. And uh, I kind of lay there and, and, you know, lay awake until I hear people upstairs moving around. So they're having breakfast. I I walk up to apologize because I've screamed at the top of my lungs and uh, loud, loudly. Hmm. And I said, yeah, I'm very sorry about that. And they said, what? I said, oh, I'm, I had a. They said, we didn't hear anything. And I'm like, well, how could you have not heard that? It was uh, at least one. Two... Oh, it's OK. Um, I. Uh, what did you I say? Apolog- I apologize for screaming okay. because I screamed at the top of my lungs. I'm a very I have a very loud voice when it needs to be. And uh, I was sure they must have heard me because there was one, two, three, four, probably five people, I think, that lived upstairs. So, you know, I thought I probably woke them all up. You know, it's not like this was a solid house. This is a you know new construction. There's nothing but drywall between us pretty much. And um, nobody heard a thing. And, I, you know, I was like, that was that strange. But uh, OK, so time goes on and. I'm watching TV one night, and uh, in the meantime, you know, all around this time, Strieber's uh, communion was in bookstores. I'm about 18, I guess 19 maybe, so it's, you know, 89, 90 in there. Okay. And 
I would see the cover of his book and I was completely repulsed by it. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know anything about alien abduction stuff. I would just see this book and just like, no, I don't like that. I don't know what that is, but I don't like it. And uh, one night there was a show, a news show on. I don't know if it was 2020 or 48 hours, one of these evening news shows. And they, they talked about, you know, we're going to do a story on alien abductions. Oh, that's interesting. You know, I didn't know anything about it, but, you know, it's the kind of thing I'm I'm definitely interested in. And I'm watching this news story and they showed I don't I don't know if it was a reenactment or someone had drawn pictures of the grays. But whatever it was, when I saw them and when they described what was happening, it's like those surgical uniforms just fell off of them. And I could see them clearly, like immediately. I just knew like 100 percent that's what they were. They weren't doctors. They were these things. It became crystal clear in my head what I had seen, what was standing beside my bed. I think that's a screen memory I learned many years later. Uh, but I, I knew right then what it was. And kind of read up a little bit about it. It was the kind of thing where I just wasn't ready. Um, I moved back to my parents' farm for a while after college. And I remember being interested in it, and I stuck a voice-activated cassette recorder under my bed hmm. and recorded myself sleeping for about a week. And I played about three minutes of that tape back and heard myself very emphatically saying no and what sounded like an 8-bit video game. As corny as that sounds, it just sounded like you know a bunch of beeps and bloops and me saying no. And I, what in I the world? That- what I happened took, to the tape? I took that tape out and I threw it in the garbage no! because I was not ready for it. I would pay good money for that tape today. I absolutely would, but I was in no way ready for that. Yeah. It, so it sounded I, digital, though? Yeah, it sounded like an 8-bit Atari game or that something. That stuff like is that. so weird because that comes up in so many... It comes up visually, too, sometimes. That's... It's so weird. You got to wonder, too, if it sounded digital, whether you've got like that you know, if it's binary, if it says something, or it, yeah, I, you know, yeah, I mean yeah. that opens up a lot of right philosophical questions. Right. I wish I had that tape. I really do, but I just couldn't handle it at the time. Like just mentally, I was not ready for it. And uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't have too many more experiences that I can remember. There's one that happened uh, later. Uh, in the in the meantime here, I was telling I had told no one but Allison this story. Yeah. And the first time I ever told anyone but Allison, I, I told a friend of ours, we were we were hanging out with him one night and we went back to sleep at Allison's parents house. And that's when Allison that night is when Allison had her flannel man experience. Really? Yeah. The first time I ever told anybody but her about the, the abduction stuff. She had her flannel man experience that that, that part I have not heard. I've not heard you say this before. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, because I had blamed myself for years because I thought yeah. like, oh, I told the story about these people like hovering over me, you know, doing stuff. And then she has this nightmare about this guy hovering over her until I read that other people saw, him, you know, right. saw this. And then I was like, wow, um, the the last like really like kind of intense one I remember was in my 30s and I woke up in a desert. And now I'm laying down. I don't know how I knew it was a desert because I was pretty locked up. I couldn't move much. I guess I had enough, uh, you know, I could see enough of the landscape, I guess, to tell it was a desert. 
and I'm very confused. And I'm thinking, you know, why am I here? And then all of a sudden I see these two heads just come into view over top of me. They, they lean one from either side and they're wearing these stupid Snoopy and the Red Baron kind of uh, World War One fighter helmets. Interesting. Fighter helmets with, with goggles. And I'm looking yeah. up and I'm thinking to myself, that's, that's stupid. Why are you wearing those stupid helmets? <laughs> like, what's this about? And all of a sudden I was like, oh, those aren't goggles. Those are, those are their eyes. And they turn like on a dime. I could say this because so they turned into the grays, you know, basically as I'm watching, looking right. at them. Right. And, and then they said in unison, in a very monotone voice, we are the ones who take you, both of them together. And then I, the next thing I knew, I sat straight upright in bed. I was, I was awake. It was morning. So, I, and I, see, I don't think I ever left my bed. I was very happy when uh, yes. I, I said that on Where Did the Road Go? And Mike Clellan said, yeah, that's how I talk about my experiences. Because I didn't think they counted until then. You know what I mean? I didn't think mine really counted because I didn't have any, you know, I wasn't taken aboard a UFO. I didn't, you know, this or that. But uh, I, I don't think I left my bed. I think they were probably out-of-body experiences. I, I really do. Right. And, you know, Joe Jordan, um, I don't know if you're familiar with him. Now, he's more on the kind of the Christian side of this. He's one of those <laughs> that believes that, um, well, he's the main one that believes that you can stop this by calling on the name of Jesus or um, mm-hmm. specifically on the name of Jesus. But but he says that, too, that, you know, the whole alien abduction phenomenon People are not actually going anywhere. That this is all a spiritual experience. Mm-hmm. And when people are next to people in physical reality when this happens, and they have spouses and people next to exactly. them see them and say, "No, right. you're exactly. just there." So. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's been that's been reported too. I have to wonder with whether or not you know the the whole co creation theory that Greg Bishop talks about. Whether or not this was just these entities were showing you what they thought that you wanted to see. So they actually were these like doctor like figures, but then you saw the cover of communion and then they just kind of morphed into that because in in some weird way, that's what you were expecting. The screen memory stuff. Yeah. That could be an aspect of that. Right. But it's not necessarily that the screen memory. Is the owl become the, the alien is covering up there and could becoming be detail, the owl? Just details that would change. Yeah, it's 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 just this. These entities are becoming. They are. They are just. They look like something, but they're projecting an image from us onto them. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there could be something big to that. These right. things could all be. And by these things, I mean ghosts, Bigfoot, aliens, all, all this stuff could be yeah. uh, skins like a video game, you know, and how we see them or, or what skin they, they choose to wear or present may depend on who we are and, and the situation we're in. I don't know. I don't, you know. Right. And it could uh, be just like a lens that we, you know, we're peering into something and we use our, I think they call it like heuristics in psychology, where, you know, we have frames of references and things that we can put together to see things. Like, we couldn't see it in its own form. We we have to make sense of it. We have to use our own imaginations and constructions, how we think, to see these yeah. things. Yeah, now I have something on that. But before we get off track, I do want to hit. So, 
in the past, I want to say two years, maybe I had an, uh, an event that was like an almost abduction. I'll say, uh, I was laying in the field in this state, this dream state or whatever you want to call it out of body state. Mm. I know the specific field it is. Uh, I'm, I'm very familiar with it. It's, it's called high point here in York County. And it overlooks the Susquehanna River, and I'm laying there, and I'm looking up in the sky, and I see what I thought was a radiator in the sky. And I'm like, what is a radiator? Like, what is that? How is that? And then all of a sudden, it came very quickly down uh, and filled up the entire sky. And I realized it was some kind of craft. I felt myself freezing up, locking up. And, you know, I've, I've, I'm a uh, proponent of the pray the gray away thing. Um, I've, I've told people about it and I think this is the first time I tried it. And, uh, being Catholic, I said the hail Mary and I was able to move. I rolled over on my stomach and I woke up saying the hail Mary out loud into my pillow. So d- d- did I stop it? I don't know. I, you know, I, I, I don't know, but, uh, I've talked to enough people who have used prayer or, you know, and this is very delicate. And because I, I think people, people like the idea that their religion is confirmed. So if they're Christians and they've said a prayer to Jesus and it's worked, now this is confirmed to them that their religion is right. right. So they get very upset when I say the following, that it works just as well for Muslims and Jewish people and yeah. Wiccans praying to the the deity of their choice right. as it does with, for Christians. And, now and that, even if we've left those religions, whatever religion you were anchored in the most as a child and had those kind of imprints on you, I think, too, you know, because I've been in, like, I, I, I'm, I've left Christianity a long time ago, but still I have those childhood imprints. And when I'm in, you know, real dire circumstances, I will, you know, go back to that as a default, you know. I think that's part of it. I think it speaks to the belief component. And I think I don't think people should get upset. I'm not saying your religion is wrong. I'm not saying any religion is right. I'm not saying all religions are right. Yeah. I'm only saying that I think there's a belief component and that it responds to that. And uh, Well, you should feel free to express yourself on the Conspiracy Normal podcast. Well, I, what happens <laughs> is people get upset and they, they think I'm telling them that their religion is wrong. And that's absolutely not what I'm doing. I think religion is a good thing. I think, you know... If if you're Christian, (laughs) true religion can be a good thing. Uh, Well, we've definitely talked about the downside of that on the show before. So, oh yeah, 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 sure. But Uh, but in any case, uh, I just have to be clear because people do get very very upset when they think I'm saying like you know you're wrong or or something, and that's not what I'm saying at all. But yeah, if we can't if we can't talk about things like that though, I mean you can't really explore what we're talking about. So yeah, yeah. Well, I just like to throw that caveat in there. Absolutely. The other thing uh, I wanted to mention now, this, see, this kind of puts a check mark in the, you know, little doctors from outer space category. And it's always kind of made me feel weird. Other than that most recent one where I said the Hail Mary, all of my experiences kind of came to an end. The last one was around the time I got diagnosed with MS. And it always made me think, like, do they not want me anymore? Hmm. And, you know, it's it, like it always had that weird feeling where it's like right around the time I got diagnosed as MS is when these things like kind of stopped happening. So who knows? I don't you know, I don't know if that means anything or not. I don't know. Yeah, but, you know, if they weren't taking you physically, then. Right. How yeah. would that matter? 
You yeah, know, that, right? that's 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 kind of a paradox there. Right. Sure. If they yeah. weren't, then then it, then it wouldn't matter. Right. I mean, unless I mean, it, it, well, it does have to do with scarification of my brain. You know what I mean? Like, is there something? No, that could be it, possibly. Yeah. But you know, you hear about that though, in in other cases where in the abduction literature, so to speak, where it stops at a certain age Mm -hmm. and it will pick up with, with like the children, it will continue, but, but at a certain age for, for like the parents or whatever, it just stops. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, who knows? Yeah, yeah, it's it's a very very bizarre uh, thing. You know, you, you kind of making me think like if since since you started talking about religion, sorry, but uh, it's almost like uh, did you do you ever feel any like sense of agency or is this kind of like this kind of reminds me of aspects of narcissism is what I'm getting to, and that these you know you have these kind of like bureaucratic figures who are abducted people are doing things to Archons. you. Is it yeah? Is yeah. this some kind of like right? Yeah, is this some kind of weird demiurgic thing where, like, you're a part of something and kind of like a, you know, you're just trapped in some kind of big thing and this is, like, kind of what what we go through as a soul or whatever and we're not necessarily this, like, totally liberated individual soul that can do whatever and you're kind of in a process and... Well, that, that freaks me out more than anything I can think of. <laughs> if, if, if you've got this idea of like the simulation hypothesis, right? I mean, have right. you ever? I mean, if, did you ever see? No, I've only seen the first season, but the, the first season of Westworld. No, no, no. There's I've actually the old there's actually a sequence in it where they deactivate the robot so they can go in and do repairs. Yeah, yeah, like, right. That, it's and, scary shit like that. Yeah. So that, I mean, that to me, I'm, I'm watching this thing and I'm like, man, this is like. The alien abduction stuff, yeah, right? Yeah, they 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 take your time away, and they come in and they do they do maintenance and then they leave and everything just starts back up again. Yeah, because you're <laughs> you know? just a battery or you're just some kind of like yeah. It's like the 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 levels of are we dealing with like maybe like the levels of reality in a way? Yeah, it could be. I this is one of the most difficult questions. Like this right. whole thing, but it's very difficult. For me you to talk study about. this stuff and you encounter it in different forms. But mm-hmm. it's probably all the same thing. It seems like so. That's what I think. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm I'm to the point where I, th- I think it's at least all related. I don't know if it's all exactly the same. Right. Yeah. I think it's. I definitely think it's all related. But the implications for that, I think, are more terrifying than any of this being an individual phenomenon, because I think it points towards something bigger and more more spiritual, like that. Like well, for me, thinking about it as an out of body experience. Again, that that's it explains it way more easily for me. I can way more wrap my head around this as an out of body experience. Yes, absolutely. Like little men are taking me someplace or whatever, whatever. But it's also terrifying in the sense that if someone kidnaps you, they kidnap you. You're, you know, you they just grab your. But if somebody can pull you out of body when they want to, that to me is way more horrifying than just somebody kidnapping me. Yeah, I mean that's like. Um... You know what does as above so below mean if 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 we have limited power and agency and constraints in this physical realm why do we think that necessarily oh when you're a spirit when you die you're just you know you, you just have total power for eternal bliss and you could do anything i mean that's 
that, that that's the type of things that scares me more than materialism really it's you know what really is the nature of the soul well if i if i had to guess i'd say when wherever we go if if we go beyond this there're going to be a lot more questions than answers i think people right, get very right. they think they'll they'll have the the high enough security clearance to know everything when they die and it's, it's not going to happen well i wanted to ask you this about and we'll get to another topic soon but I wanted to ask you about these these experiences now when you did this and I know that you've had an interest yourself in like chaos magic the occult and all that stuff but did you have an interest in that at that time when you were doing that when when this occurred to you these would have corresponded with my heaviest interest and involvement in in that yeah absolutely <sighs> well there you go I did not relate them at the time in any yeah. way Right, like I didn't connect them. I didn't right. connect Why them. didn't you though? I mean, I don't know. I don't natural. know. I I certainly had like the the um, Kenneth Grant books that showed, you know, <laughs> the, the Alistair Crowley drawings with lamb in it and stuff. Uh -huh. I, I absolutely, you know, I, right. I guess maybe I did a little. I did a little bit. I think because I I remember like kind of stumbling upon the idea that they were, you know, fallen angels or something, and and kind of connecting a little bit. But I I really didn't make a hard connection. Like that things I was doing may have been somehow i don't know if bringing it on is the correct word but somehow woven into that uh, i i think at the time I, I just thought they were separate events happening wow it's amazing just how connected all this kind of stuff is i mean it really is well i don't i don't know how to really articulate this but isn't a lot of what would be considered the left-hand path in a lot of traditions about um, actually kind of giving yourself more agency and taking control of the uh, of what's going to happen in the soul's continuing continuing journey after death. So well, it's like if you're opening yourself up to, you know, things about that, it's, I can I understand how maybe, you know, you, you your contact with it becomes more conscious. This is a Ren Collier question. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. We <laughs> had him on a yeah. couple shows ago. Couple shows ago. Because Tim Renner was much more of an Austin Spare guy than an Alistair Crowley guy. Well, I, that's cool too. What what uh, what informs you from that perspective? Uh, for me, it was always, and I, I didn't really like. I spent a long time, and I've seen a lot of guys kind of ape what Spare did, and and they and I spent a long time doing that when I was young, in my twenties, you know. And at some point, I realized, kind of as I was getting out of it, and and. Uh, but I kind of realized, like, there's no, that's not the point of Spare. The point of Spare was not to copy Spare. The point of Spare was Spare carved his own way, uh, you know, kind of informed by tradition and stuff, but a really, really unique and creative way. Um, in, and that was the point of Spare. And uh, so, you know, for me, it's this, it's this kind of dual thing now where you know i'm I'm kind of out of that i'm very interested in folk magic which ironically is a, an extremely traditional form you know but but i would say the folk ma magician has to be creative in ways the yes. ceremonial magician does not because let's say you're the village healer you have say the long lost friend if you're in you know pennsylvania dutch country You've got headaches and stomach aches covered, but, you know, somebody comes to you with uh, lung cancer or, or, you know, something that's not in the long lost friend. You have to be creative and come up with, you know, something else, because if they can't get to a doctor, you're the guy, you know, and you have to try to help them. So I think there's a there's a huge amount of creativity in folk magic. 
uh, I think the the folk magician has to be creative. So well, like that, you, like you, like it's a uh, it, it's a connection to chaos magic, exactly. In in the sense of being creative, yeah. In and, the sense of yeah. being creative, in the sense of having to adapt to circumstance and your environment yeah. and the population you're serving. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, can we talk about Spare a little bit and Spare's influence on your life? Um, oh boy. Well. Because I know you're you're an artist, you're a very good artist. So, and, yeah. and you have this spiritual dimension that you know. It, I'm sure he was a big influence on you. Well, like I said, in my twenties, I kind of I kind of did what he did. You know, I I uh, I did the the sigil stuff the way he laid it out and the way he said to do it. I did. He did these things called death posture drawings, um, where it was kind of a meditation mixed with self portrait uh, that he would spend hours doing these things, like staring in the mirror and. Um, I did these death posture drawings, you know, one after another. And, you know, I just kind of, I guess when you're young though, that's how you learn, you know, you imitate yeah. your, uh, your influences. But, um, you know, at some point it just, I just fell away from it and, uh, I needed to connect with something that was more traditional, I think. And, uh, you know, I kind of, kind of reconnected with, with that and I would, Mary comes into my life and, and if I, if I turn away too long from, uh, Mary, she will come into my life and, and show herself to me. And I, after trying to deny that for a number of years, I was kind of was like, ah, okay, this, she's just whatever that is. Right. And I've said it before. I don't care if, if you tell me it's a, she's a stand in for the goddess. She was the mother of God. She's just that someone made her up. Uh, you know, it doesn't even matter anymore. I don't care. It's you know, just a symbol, whatever it is. It, I don't care. It works for me. Right. Um, but I realized at some point, like, I can't deny this. And uh, I kind of went back and tried to do the traditional Catholic thing for a while. And then I realized also, like, I'm, that's not a, a, a box I'm ever going to fit in right. either. <laughs> well, there's such a great tradition of Catholic mysticism that I'm sure you can find plenty of people you feel like you could uh relate to yeah yeah they're they're there definitely but uh yeah so the spare i mean artistically he was so skilled that i mean at some point i just realized like this like this guy is is just you know has more technical skill than than i'll ever have so there's only so much you can do i guess with that you know before you just go well i got i gotta find my own way you know i gotcha i was um one of the most interesting parts of uh, I got a copy of the Psychic Bible, the Sp Psychic Bible. And ah, yes. They, they talk a lot about, you know, Spare's, of course, big influence on, on Genesis and everything. And uh, they talk about uh, this idea of time mirrors and that around some of Spare's artwork, there is like strange time and space bending properties, like art artwork that exists to this day. That if people look at it, it can get you into altered states. That weird things happen around some of his artwork. Do you did you study any of that at all? Because that that was one of the most uh, you know fascinating things in that in that whole really? group of writings. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I mean, you know, I I would say I tried to do those sorts of things with my own artwork. You know right, what I mean? Right. Yeah, but, that's what I'm curious but, about. But uh, I was how successful I was. I don't know, and I I don't think it was successful because I I was aping spare you know i mean i wasn't mm -hmm. I, like i said i think the point of spare would be to figure out your own way to do that not to try to do what spare did can you kind of break that down what 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 he was trying to do and what he might have done this this idea of him creating time mirrors with works of art 
I can't speak on that honestly. Okay. I you know, it's, I, I've read the Psychic Bible, but, you know, this is back in college. So. Yeah, okay, cool. I was just trying to, I, I haven't been able to yeah. talk to someone about it before because I'm really trying to wrap my head around it. But my idea was that, like, he might have had intention of creating some kind of time mirror portal when he created certain works of art. The, I think one of the things you'll find with Spare is he tends to be one of these people that other people can place whatever they want, whatever mantle they want over him. Okay, and and they do, I believe. I was pen pals with a student of Spares, an art student, and uh, very very nice man. He sent me a lot of uh, Spare stuff, like art catalogs and and things. Uh, and I think he was probably this is back in the '90s, and he was this guy was probably in his '80s at that time, so I'm sure he's passed by now. But uh, he told me that you know he took art lessons from spare for several years and never once well not never once he said spare rarely rarely ever talked to him about occult stuff it, it was his impression that it just wasn't that big a part of his life but if you look at kenneth grant and what he wrote on him and kenneth grant i i believe would have considered himself a student of spares as well but more on the occult side less on the art and you know he uh, if you take what kenneth grant wrote you know austin spare was this you know witch master you know who was constantly right. you know in, in contact with whatever forces are you know the great old ones or whatever whatever <laughs> Grant would have called it you know and his whole weird lovecraftian thing so i think what you're going to get with that and with psychic tv is is or with genesis or whoever wrote uh the psychic bible you're going to get their picture of spare you know what i mean and i don't know if it's necessarily the real picture of spare but i'm not saying it's a wrong picture of spare right it's like it's like just one facet Right. Somebody's interpretation of, yeah, and, of Spare. And that doesn't mean it's wrong. I think Spare would probably be delighted that there are the, all these different sort of interpretations of him. I had never heard of Spare until I read the graphic, the graphic novel of uh, Promethea, Alan Moore. Mm. And I'm guessing that Moore is... Uh, pretty influenced by him in some ways i think so was yeah. that now i never read that but was that the series that had one issue or one one chapter that completely took place in a small town in massachusetts called athel i don't know i don't okay. remember um I, I read that he did that and it was so weird because like, i've loved alan moore since you know i was i i managed a comic book store right out of high school when i was uh, in college and stuff and uh this was the golden age, you know, this was the time Alan Moore was doing Swamp Thing and, and oh, just yeah. loved, loved him from, from that point, loved his writing. Yeah, that's, and, I have all the, like, Alan Moore run of Swamp Things. That's like, yeah. some of my favorite stuff. And oh, yeah. But, you know, with Promethea, he did something that he didn't really do in a lot. He hinted at it in, like, V for Vendetta and I guess, like, um, Watchmen and, and all those other things and then Swamp Thing, which is more kind of a straight-up horror comic. Mm -hmm. But in Promethea, he really lays out his all his occult philosophy, and it's really influenced by Crowley, first of all, and then Spare is brought up several times, mm -hmm. and Jack Parsons at least once. So, the first time I'd ever heard of Spare was through that through that comic book series. Yeah, yeah. Well, I always found it incredibly interesting that he did, and, and again, I don't know if it was in that series, but he one of these series he wrote later, like around the time he was doing Promethea, 
he did a whole issue or chapter or something. Like I said, it took place in Athol, Massachusetts, which I had a friend who lived in a cabin right outside of there. It's such a little town. Uh, he worked in Athol, actually. He worked at a, while he was uh, going to school in Harvard, at Harvard, he worked at a convenience store. He was getting his doctorate at Harvard, worked in a convenience store in Athol, Massachusetts, of all places. And I was like, what is this about? You know, like, why is he concentrating on this? And then, oddly enough, there's a Strange Familiars listener from Athol who showed up when I did the X-Files event. Uh, she showed up. and uh, Synchronicity, bro. Yeah, I don't, it's like something about Athol uh, wants me to come back, I guess. Uh, let's turn to a um, more serious subject, and that is Bigfoot. <laughs> so, okay. A few episodes ago, we had on our good friend Dan Maslach, mm-hmm. and we were talking to him about people that had these encounters after they had Bigfoot encounters. Yes. Which are very similar to people that have UFO encounters and then have men in black encounters. However, you could almost describe these encounters as men in flannel. (laughs) And it's interesting because after that episode, you contacted me and said that in the new book, which is where the footprints end, that you and Josh are working on, which I think may be books now. Yes, two volumes. You actually have, you guys actually, well, you have a chapter about this very subject i have well it's a section of a chapter i wrote a chapter on disappearing evidence that has to do with uh the reasons or or i don't i guess there's not reasons but the the fact that uh, so much bigfoot evidence just seems to disappear uh people collect the stuff and it seems to go missing and this seemed the right place to talk about this because it's uh sometimes these people uh confiscate evidence or at least are said to <laughs> Uh, I think Josh coined the term that they are the rustic men in black equivalent in the Bigfoot community, which I think is a great little quote. Um, they, there are, by the way, actual men in black encounters uh, from people who have witnessed Bigfoot. I've collected at least one of those. The, you know, the guys in the black suits and the black hats, the, the traditional men in black. But Weird. So <laughs> these, these guys show up. Um, it always seems to be the same two guys. They claim often they claim to be from the department of the interior or the bureau of land management they've gotten both it's one guy who's kind of dressed nice and and business-like and another guy they describe as a big biker looking dude and very often they say he's wearing a flannel shirt yeah and that made some connections in my mind whenever that we had dan on talking about it to you know your flannel man which we'll get to Sure, yeah. But uh, there were some of these cases that I think that, uh, that I think you wanted to kind of address. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, he named a few. And the thing is, there's, you know, there's more than he named. And I, I did want to talk about it in case somebody knows, and, you know, if anybody listening knows of others, please contact me because uh, I'm trying to document as many of these as I can. But the earliest one I've found is from 1989. And uh, this woman was on Sasquatch Chronicles. Her name was Claire. She was from the UK. So she came to California on a business trip, but she had some time to do some sightseeing. She was near Carmel, California. She went on a nature trail. She uh, was down by the sea and uh, sitting on some rocks, and she encountered several of these creatures. She saw several of them and had a very scary encounter where, I guess, you know, 
a male, the biggest in the group, stood up and approached her. The, a strange uh, detail, she said, is that it had an erection and was urinating as it approached her. Um, There's which, some psychological stuff going on here, man. Yeah, that, <laughs> and that would be terrifying. Yeah. Uh, she. Uh, that's the last thing she remembers. She sees it, and she this thing's coming towards her. She said she started feeling sick, and then that's the last thing she remembers. So she passed out. She came to about 20 yards from her car with her jacket pulled up around her head, black and blue on her left side. She had bad scratches on her. She presumes that she'd been drugged there by the creatures and, and left by her car. Uh, so she calls the police, said she's been a victim of an assault. Um, they take down the details of her encounter. They asked her if she'd been drinking. So, uh, and they, she said the police were like really rude and obnoxious. This, a second one ar- arrived, and the quote was, if he was a police officer, I've never seen a police officer like him. He had jeans on and what we refer to as a lumberjack shirt, so it was plaid, a white T-shirt underneath that. He was in his early to mid-40s, very, very wiry, peppery hair, big beard. He didn't say anything. He just stood in the back of the room and listened to what I had to say. They made her relate her story a second time while both of them listened. When she finished, the big man then told her that she was not to speak of the account again, not to tell people that she had run into anything but bears and that she was not to return to the area of her sighting. So that's from 1989, I believe I said that. Yeah. So that's the earliest one I found. Uh, 1997, there was an employee at the Glacier National Park in Montana. He was doing maintenance and cleanup work. He ran into a Bigfoot. Uh, there was a horrible spell, smelling thing. Uh, it was a huge creature. It was laying on its side. And it was tearing apart of a, a rotting tree. And uh, when he saw it, he exclaimed, there's a Bigfoot. And he said the creature leapt to its feet. He felt nauseous as soon as he saw it. And uh, they had they were carrying a radio, they said, which crackled with static. That seemed to upset the creature. It began shaking all over. Let out a ferocious roar, at which point they ran away. So he was cautioned by the Forest Service employees not to talk about his encounter. They said, no one's going to believe you. Just don't talk about it. People are going to make fun of you. But he persisted in telling other people and asking other employees if they've ever run into Bigfoot. Shortly after that, a big black Ford Explorer pulled up with government plates. A large bearded man exited the vehicle and asked to talk with Travis. Travis, uh, the witness, he said he was six foot four and he had to look up to talk to this man. It's a huge dude. So the man uh, started speaking to everyone loudly so that everyone could hear. He accused Travis of not being able to tell the difference between a bear and a mule deer. Said he was telling stupid Sasquatch stories. And then... Travis noted that someone called this man Gary and the Mary, the man got upset and insisted that he was to be called bear, <laughs> which I find absolutely amazing considering <laughs> how many times bears are mistaken for Sasquatch or vice versa. Um, but, uh, this witness, Travis felt that this guy was there 100% to intimidate him, to stop him from talking about his encounter. What, uh, your other guest did talk about this one from 2003. It was in Tazewell County, Virginia. It was the hunter. He came upon to, uh, I believe your guest said it was a, a adult and a child. And what it was, it was a male and a female. It was a very large male. And he said a female was in the tree. The hunter said this. Uh, he was so scared, basically. He was looking at these things. He, he had his rifle with him. And the female grunted. And he was, I think he said he was closer to the male. And it scared him so much. 
that he just turned and fired and shot the shot the female and the male picked it up like a rag doll he said grabbed it by its arm and climbed a sheer cliff while holding the female just climbed right up it he said a few days later a game warden came out to talk to him he took him up to the sighting of the thing and showed him the tracks and uh, he said the game game warden declared this ain't right <laughs> he took samples of the blood that was on the snow and uh, took him in a plastic bag a week later he said these two individuals show up at his place of employment it was a gray minivan with a government license tag and he described them as follows one gentleman was clean cut he had a suit and a tie on nice and polite the other individual was a large man probably six foot eight or better he did not look like someone who would work for the government he had hair long hair kind of scruffy beard he wasn't clean shaven at all he did not look like a government employee would look so they follow him he says i can't talk to you at work follow me home they follow him to his home and they asked him to tell his account. He related his account. And the two men asked, do you think what you saw was really a Sasquatch? The hunter had said that he noticed specifically that he never once called the creature Sasquatch, only Bigfoot. So the hunter, hunter replied that I'm 100% sure that what I saw was a Sasquatch. The large man then says, no, you didn't. <laughs> so they basically tell him he's not to talk about it and so forth. Uh, my favorite one is from 2015. It was a police officer named Jack who was having several reports of creatures in the area. And he started taking down the reports and filing them. And, uh, the reports range from creatures harassing farmers to a gorilla, which chased a 15 year old boy who was riding his bike at night. Um, he said he was confronted by two feds. That's the way he described them. They said one of the men was clean cut and dressed nicely. The other was large, more unkempt, with a beard and messy hair and a ratty button-down shirt. That's how he described him. They told Jack to stop talking to witnesses, stop filing reports on Bigfoot encounters. And uh, they had a meeting with him and his chief of police. And the large bearded man became aggressive and tried to in intimidate Jack during this meeting. After a verbal confrontation, Jack was suspended for two weeks, he said. So he comes back to work. He gets a call He's investigating a prowler call at a local residence. He's searching around the house, and he comes face-to-face -face with a Bigfoot creature. He says he aims his handgun at the creature, but he heard something behind him, like a noise behind him. So he briefly glanced toward the sound to make sure something wasn't coming up behind him. And then the creature, which was now running off, the creature ran off. He took that opportunity when he looked away to run off. So he turns around, and he sees this large bearded fed, as he called him, walk up behind him. And the man said, you couldn't shoot, could you? Jack replied, no, I couldn't. And the big man put his hand on Jack's shoulder and said, good man. So <laughs> that's uh, how did the big man know he was out there? That is pretty incredible to me. That that one's, what? like I said, that's my favorite. The fact that he's out there and saying, couldn't shoot, could you? And uh, Wes Germer from Sasquatch Chronicles, he noted that he's gotten calls from police officers all over the country who did not want to come on his podcast but Wes said that they're telling the same stories and they're always seeing these two guys, two same guys all over the country. And uh, I believe they said it's always the two same guys. So what's going on with that? I have no clue. That but, is the job. And, yeah. and, and we're talking over a number of years. We're not talking yeah. about like, you know, just two years or something like that. This is right. Exactly. This is going on, what, 20, 30 years? Yeah, so we're starting in 89 and going at least to, you know, 2015, at least. These guys I mean, are really busy. Yeah, right. And they're all over the country. They're in California. They're in Virginia. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's 
it's pretty wild. Then he get David Lynch to make a series about him. <laughs> <laughs> I I didn't watch um, Twin Peaks, but somebody told me there's a there's a flannel man lumberjack character in. Yeah, uh, Rand probably piece. told you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. So we're dealing with a couple of possibilities here. We're dealing with that these are actual government agencies or government agents and they're actually just somehow mystically there right after a Bigfoot sighting <laughs> or we are dealing with something that is a part of the Bigfoot experience itself that is just as unexplainable and just as weird similar to the Men in Black phenomenon yeah the yeah, non-material so aspects of the Men in Black yeah Right. Wes noted that these guys most often seem to show up when people have like really good evidence, often physical evidence. If they've got blood or, you know, fur or hair, rather hair or something like that, they will show up more often than just somebody who has an encounter. And so you wonder, you know. Well, something always happens to app ports, right? uh, Meaning? Meaning they, they often disappear or people lose them. Bigfoot evidence disappears at an insane yeah. rate. At, like I said, this this uh, this plaid is the new black is the, is what I called the uh, the section on these two guys uh, in my in the book, and it's part of a, a chapter on disappearing evidence. And my favorite example of disappearing evidence is the Patterson Gimlin film. Um, you know, it's the famous Bigfoot film where the creature is filmed going across the creek bed. It looks back at the camera. The one from '67, I believe it is. Um, the right. original's gone. We don't have the original. <laughs> there's there's rumors that it's in some lawyer's office or it's in some film archive, but no one can put their hands on it. If we had the original, I believe they said they could do tests on it and they, they could find out for sure what speed it was filmed at and they would know the height of the creature, finally, because that's one of the things they can't tell. It depends on what speed it was filmed at. How It's either you know normal man-sized or it's bigger, and they can't tell without the original film. So... The original film's gone. I mean, somebody says, you know, people say it's here or there, but effectively it's gone. So effectively it's been disappeared. If you can't put your hands on it, it's gone. But this duo, and, their their responsibility is to take evidence, pretty much. Well, Intimidate and take evidence. Yeah, supposedly sometimes they do, yeah. Or other people take the evidence and then these guys show up. I don't know. But, uh, you know, the interesting thing about the Patterson-Gimlin film also is that uh, a guy named uh, Hieronymus claimed to be the guy in the suit and uh, claimed it was all a hoax and he was the guy in the suit but he can't produce a suit either so you have this wonderful conundrum of you know if if that was a suit if you somebody was in a suit in that film that's the most important gorilla suit in the history of <laughs> mankind probably yeah, right. incredibly important and then right. it's just like you know oh it was in my trunk or it was in my mom's attic and you know for whatever whatever the case it's gone so both sides of that in that film, you know, to this day, you would get experts arguing both sides of that film up and down. Uh, both sides have missing evidence. So that's that's my favorite story of that. But, uh, yeah, it's throughout the, the, the phenomenon. The DNA evidence goes missing. Hair evidence goes missing. Uh, bullets, you know, people claim to shoot bullets and then retrieve them. You know, if, they, if they've gone through the creatures, the, the bullets go missing. Uh, people who have claimed to actually shoot and kill the creatures, well, 100% of the time, the bodies go missing. There's now, like... No question, 100% of the time. 
everybody who's ever claimed to shoot one, 100% of the time, the body's gone. It's a damn Smithsonian Institute, if you ask me. <laughs> I had to address that in the first part of the, the uh, chapter because there's giant skeletons yeah. stories. Yeah, yeah. That, that's a that's big where, where we're at down here, too. We had some pretty famous uh, famous uh, antiquarians who, uh, yeah, they, they, they said they dug up giants and pygmies and everything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those stories are, and it's, and they always go missing, just like the, just like the Bigfoot stuff. Uh, meanwhile, they never name these Smithsonian scientists who, you know, show up to take these giant bones in the in the news articles. They're just, you know, from the Smithsonian. Maybe yeah. they're like the equivalent of these, uh, this duo showing up at of Bigfoot sightings now. Yeah, there was probably no BLM at the time, so they had to say they're from the Smithsonian. Wow. Okay. <laughs> well, the similarities between that and the men in black phenomenon are just really striking. Yeah. Yeah. You don't tend to get the like the odd behavior with with these two guys. They do be seem to behave more like, you know, regular people. They're not, you know, drinking bleach or wrapping jello up in their handkerchiefs or yeah, anything. They're not trying to figure out how to use a fork or right, know, like like right. in the Mothman <laughs> prophecies and Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I forget who had the man in black story they were talking about and they said the they took a container of bleach and they said, what's this? And they said, it's bleach. And then they, the guy drank half a gallon of bleach, one of the men in black and handed it to the other one that was with him. And he drank the rest of it. <laughs> I'm like, that is insane. Like that, that must've been like, uh, like, how do you, how do you process that? Bizarre. That's, that's that like, might've been in kill. Yeah. It's like the guys from the matrix. It's that same kind of weird demiurgic thing. Like, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, when we did that show and mentioned that this guy, this other guy was, you know, pretty much dressed in flannel, this had me thinking about flannel man. Yes. And you've talked about, you've talked about this several times on strange familiars. In fact, it's like the most common topic on strange familiars is flannel man. So, Let's talk about this a little bit because I mean this this is bizarre and this is something that I I never had heard of before but apparently Kill does talk about it in I think Mothman Prophecies. He talks about it in a couple books. He talks about it in Mothman Prophecies. He's got one that's called like Creatures Mysterious Creatures from Time or Space or something. He talks about them in there as well. Um yeah, I mean I didn't, you know, I didn't invent this. Um, I'm just the guy who's, I, I, I guess I probably collected more stories than anybody else on it at this point, but it's, it's not something I invented. It, it existed before. And that's how I knew it was a thing. Like I said, Allison had her, uh, encounter where she woke up and this guy in flannel standing at her feet, holding an ax. She said he looked shocked to see her. She screamed, but she said it was more out of like, you know, someone that was there who shouldn't be. Then she felt, she didn't feel like he was necessarily aggressive or, or going to swing the ax or anything. Um, and she's not, she says she's pretty sure he was holding an ax, but she's also like, he looks so much like a lumberjack that she might've in her memory put an ax in his hands, but she's, she's pretty sure he was holding an ax and it's not uncommon. Uh, very often, not always, but very often he's seen holding an ax or a shovel. Um, but in any case, uh, when I saw on an internet forum that other people had seen this thing, I just kind of followed away in the back of my head and I didn't even tell Allison for years until I was doing strange familiars. So probably almost 20 years I didn't tell her because I didn't want to upset her. I didn't want to scare her. 
that she had seen something else. Uh, interestingly enough, when she was little, she saw black dogs in that same room, these red-eyed uh, supernatural black dogs. And over time, collecting these cases, a, a serious number of people who've seen Flannel Man have also seen uh, these supernatural black dogs, either at the same time or in separate times. So is there? don't ask me what that connection is. But um, in any case, I, I just talked about it on an episode and then it started blowing up. I had a, you know, guy on to tell me, you know, he didn't know it was a thing. He, he thought it was just a ghost or something. You know, for years he didn't know what it was. And then, you know, he had encountered it when he was a little kid. And that was this, uh, Dave, that was our, I think our earliest, uh, account other than Allison's. And then from there it just exploded people from all over. I still get emails every week. People who said, you know, I've, I've seen, I've seen flannel man. Uh, and it's not one man we should point out. It's you know they're seeing different people who just happen to be dressed like this. Right. It's, it's not you know, the same the same guy. Right. Necessarily. Yeah. Uh, At least by looks, you know. Right. Yeah. It, it's it's just such a an amazing thing that people have this archetype in their minds. I mean, you, you try to explore this a little bit and try to say, like, you know, this is some kind of, like, maybe American archetype or yeah, this I may have I... something to do with, um, you've, you've tried to kind of explain this away in some way, in, in a way, uh, you did talk about, like, the, the, the jumping Frenchman, I remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The, so yeah, originally I thought, well, this is maybe this is a you know, like the Paul Bunyan archetype. It has to do with you know, right, the the American experience or whatever, and you know that goes away when the international calls start coming in, you know, and it's like okay, well maybe not. And um, the jumping Frenchman thing was incredibly interesting because here's lumberjack camps that have this syndrome, these guys in these lumberjack camps that they, they go into these trance like states. So one of the accounts we got of flannel man, that was that there were two of them staying outside a guy's window and they were mirroring each other's movements. So, you know, they, one would move its arm and the other would move, you know, the the, the arm in a mirror like fashion. Yeah. I think that's actually Jedediah's account. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. And shortly after that, one of my listeners says, Hey, check out jumping Frenchman syndrome. And I look at that, and one of the syndromes, one of the, the symptoms of the syndrome, rather, is uh, they can do mirror-like movements. They can mirror each other's movements. Very, very strange. But it's uh, it's related, they think, to Tourette's, I believe. And it's uh, kind of what it sounds like. You could walk up to these guys and say, jump, and they'll jump. You can give them any kind of quick order you have. Yeah, I believe that, that it's kind of due to, like, just extreme isolation. Yeah, they think it's related to that, yeah. although uh, there's a heartbreaking modern video of a kid on YouTube who has it, and uh, it's he's you know kind of tortured by kids at school and stuff from what he relates. It's it's kind of heartbreaking. So it, it's still out there. I don't believe you know he's from a necessarily isolated population, but it does happen more frequently in these isolated populations. It's very, very strange. But they said it's, they also think it's related to trans behavior. So I started thinking... You know, are these guys jumping out of body when they're jumping, in a sense, when they're going into these trance states and doing this stuff? Are they jumping out of body, possibly, and 
and maybe even jumping through time and appearing somewhere else. You know, I, I don't think that's a likely explanation, but it's just, you know, it's fun to speculate. Yeah. And I think that there's, there's something to this idea of, uh, when, you know, European people coming over here, really encountering, you know, many of them urban people previously, and then really encountering the wild and an alien wild of a, of a new place. And I think there's a lot of kind of, you know, Jungian and psychological aspects to that, that kind of contribute to this whole, this whole idea. Yeah. Yeah. So the thing we're working on now is the idea that he's kind of half a wild man. You know, the lumberjack is, He's not a full wild man. He spends a lot of time in the forest, you know. He's sort of that bridge between those of us who live in town and, the, you know, the true wild man out there. And uh, is he, you know, this in-between? And when you consider that and you consider these this big guy that uh, is showing up to these Bigfoot witnesses, it, it becomes a very, very interesting thought experiment. Do you think there's a relationship to kind of popular ideas about our alienation from nature and that this is, you know, just like Bigfoot is, you know, the more we're encroaching on nature, the more it's pushing back into our, uh, the depths of our psyche, which, you know, have the same, the same origins because we're somehow connected. Well, I mean, in terms of Bigfoot, if you look at these historical accounts of which I've collected, you know, however many hundreds at this point, Sometimes, sometimes it sounds like they're describing a big ape, sure. But sometimes it sounds like they're describing just a hairy man. And right. he seems not quite as wild as our Sasquatch today. And Josh and I have kind of been playing with the, the idea that just like UFOs were, you know, in the 1800s, they were these airships that looked like big balloons and blimps and stuff. And they've changed over time. I think the wild man archetype has changed as well. I think it's gotten wilder as we've gotten more civilized. And Big in the contactee literature, you have more human looking people in the past. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. They've, they've gotten weirder and, you know, creepier in a way. And, uh, the, I believe the wild man is getting, has gotten wilder as we've gotten further away from nature. Um, if you look at the medieval depictions, they just look like big hairy guys carrying clubs and uh, that seems to be what they're describing in the 1800s. In a lot of these cases, it looked like, you know, to the point where people are often like, well, how do you know it's not just a mountain man in these reports? Well, you know, some things would suggest it's probably not. It's, you know, acting a little bit more like these modern descriptions of Bigfoot. But the, the visual descriptions are often like, you know, it's just a big guy with a big, long beard and he's got hair on him, and hair all over him. Um, it's, they're not describing a, a big gorilla. Now, of course around 1900 or late 1800s, that's when the gorilla becomes wider known. The mountain gorilla is, is uh, not discovered, but uh, people in the West become aware of it. Often people say it's discovered, but uh, the Africans knew it was there all along. People right. in the West become aware of the mountain gorilla, and we start seeing pictures, and then, then the reports change in the newspapers from wild man reports often to gorilla reports you get. So there might be a few things happening there. But uh, no, it's really interesting. I think... I really think the our wild men have changed and gotten gotten wilder as we've gotten more civilized in a sense or, or further away from nature, I guess mm -hmm. I should say. So We're you really do think there is kind of this psychological or spiritual component to that with our relation to nature? 
Yeah, yeah, and I think Flannel Man may be, like I said, that that kind of bridge between the two. He's not not quite as wild as as our Wild Man, but he's, you know, he's, he's halfway there. Was there wasn't there one of the stories that you had on Strange Familiar? Someone talked about their car being lifted up and yeah yeah it was, it was clearly like a kind of like a sasquatch or bigfoot like creature but it was wearing flannel <laughs> it sounds like a bigfoot report until the last minute and uh mm-hmm. th- this guy did not tell me about this story he told me what he was going to be talking about he didn't even mention this one so in the middle of the interview he's like i have this other story and so it was a complete surprise to me i loved it i was super happy he did this because it was a complete surprise and shock to me and it was a story from his father and he said it was his father and uh his mother we were with another couple on a you know double date they had parked the car and the two guys were outside of the car drinking a beer and the you know the, the women were inside and they start hearing something big coming down like taking big heavy steps coming down the road and it scared them enough where they got in the car and uh they're starting it and trying to go, and all of a sudden the rear end of the car lifts up. Which I've I've collected other Bigfoot reports of that. In fact, uh, two yeah. in around Toad Road, which is the my, one of my areas I do a lot of research at. And uh, he asked his father if he saw anything, and he, his father said he he looked in the rearview mirror and all he could see was red flannel, which just <laughs> blew my mind. I mean, absolutely blew my mind. Is let me ask you this question. Is there an archetype to this to it being red flannel particularly? There must be. Um, buffalo plaid is like ninety plus percent of what people see. Some people see him in yellow and blue plaid, but that I just wonder if that was just the most. I mean, it's it's the image of flannel that that's etched in all, most of Americans' minds. I'm just wondering if that was the most popular and widespread used color flannel could be i mean it could be as simple as that there are some kind of mystical things associated with buffalo plaid uh at least according to the legends that go with it i think it's the rob roy tartan i'm not i could be mistaken there oh please please yeah get into that you so you you're tracing it back to the, the the scottish clans yeah well i'm trying you know um my goodness, about, to our exactly because we talked to Celtic yeah, ancestry. When we were talking to you and and Joshua too. Is yeah. like getting into yeah the Fey folk and all that. Yeah, all that's yeah. all, all from the Scotch Irish folks. Yeah, right. Yeah, so it is. Um, let me find my notes on it. Yeah, so it's it's the Rob Roy Tartan, and supposedly a guy named Jock McCluskey brought it over here. He was a uh, in in the Wild West. He was like a lawman and a bounty hunter, a fur trapper, one of these guys that did everything out in the West. And uh, he would get these buffalo plaid blankets and he would trade them with the Indians. Mm -hmm. And supposedly the First Nations people thought that they were, you know, really special. Um, They they really liked these. And they said, I'm trying to find the actual quote. So the Sioux and Cheyenne... They believed it to be a sorcerer's hex, a dye distilled from the blood and ghostly souls of Mikulski's prey and enemies. Mm. So, Ooh. and suppose that he he did nothing to discourage this belief because, uh, of course, it, it helped him yeah. uh, trade. That continued for a long time with Pendleton wool mills. I mean, 
my uh, my great grandfather who has Navajo had Navajo ancestry was buried in two chief blankets in his wooden coffin. I mean, the yeah those those companies and the the you know the Indians the Indians traded their blankets for all of the uh, American made wool from you know from from traders and then from Pendleton became the biggest corporation really exploiting that and uh you know now the the indian stuff is worth you know so much money the rugs and Navajo rugs and stuff but the yeah that's yeah that's that's wild man that's great that you guys are doing that research i think there's a lot in that i mean that's kind of a, an american esotericism i think i haven't ever heard before you guys are really getting into something well i'm, I'm trying and that'll be you know that that goes beyond the bigfoot book that's uh yeah, that'll yeah. Be in my flannel man book whenever whenever i get around to that which uh yeah absolutely there's something to that i mean you know what is it really about it, it'll it'll be post uh where the footprints then or josh will kill me <laughs> <laughs> so there's another figure that you've been talking about recently on the show and this one is uh just extremely bizarre is bunny man yeah. Yeah. So these I love because it's this combination. And in a way, I'm getting these Flannel Man reports too now. So I started to get, you know, originally I was getting a lot of the Flannel Man reports that sound very much like what happened to Allison. People wake up in their bedroom and he's there at night, you know, and then he disappears. Variants of that. But lately I've started to get these reports of people who have had other experiences. So they've, uh, maybe they've had a UFO experience or they've had a ghost experience and they're remembering now after they've heard these flannel reports, they're, they're remembering like, you know, years later that earlier in the night they ran into this weird guy who was dressed in red flannel and they didn't think anything of it because he didn't look, you know, he didn't look like anything supernatural, but they're remembering like the, these, this otherwise normal guy that just happened to be dressed in red flannel that they saw slightly before or slightly after this other weird experience. And uh, I have to say, I love this. I love that this is coming out now. And this bunny man thing seems to be the same. Now, some people are reporting like, you know, being kids and waking up and walking into the living room and they see this Easter bunny kind of thing there. And you wonder if that's not what, like you guys were talking about before, where whatever was really there, they can't, they just can't comprehend. And they're sort of skinning it with this Easter bunny image. But I'm also getting these weird reports of, you know, what seem to be just normal people outside of Easter time wearing bunny suits in just really odd situations. <laughs> Can you go over some of them? And and the one that you were talking about, um, I, I listened to this one. It was the episode with the girl was talking about how she woke up in the middle of the night and she saw pretty much like the Easter bunny in her house. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. but that starts leading into other aspects of it where she felt like she was having this kind of quote unquote alien abduction stuff going on with her. So right. it was almost like the quote unquote screen memory that was happening yep. with her as well with this with this and, and and it's funny because I've heard that before. Um I've actually heard that in the literature before. There was a, there was one of the shows that we had on uh, Justin Cancellari, who was a, who had done some ghost hunting in the past, and he went to a to this um, house where this child 
was seeing a good cartoon character Mm -hmm. that was constantly haunting him. Mm -hmm. And I told Justin, I said, you know, at the time, you guys probably didn't even think about this because a lot of the stuff in the paranormal, we tend to just... We tend to just put everything in its place and say the ghosts are ghosts, aliens are aliens, and all this stuff. But, you know, I would look at that and say, like, there's probably some kind of, like, you know, screen memory stuff going on there with the alien abduction phenomenon. Well, and I think the role of the absurd, the Kafkaesque. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a big, it it is a big theme, you know. Right. Exactly. Modern life. Especially. Since publishing these Bunny Man episodes, I've gotten a couple cartoon character ones too, where people said, "Yeah, there was a," and I forget the actual cartoon characters, but you know, there was a cartoon character who lived under the trailer I lived in. Uh-huh. He would always t- ask me to come under the trailer, you know, and some popular cartoon character. I don't, you know, that's like Captain- Pennywise, man. That's yeah. like yeah, right? freaking, <laughs> like Captain Crunch or something. I don't know if it, you know, yeah, sort of, right. Like, but just back in Mama, English- Count Chocolate told me to come under the. <laughs> Crawl space. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's like so bizarre. But you just wonder, like, you I mean, it just seems prime, like, yeah, you just skinned whatever it was with that because you you in this Lovecraftian horror kind of sense, you just could not make out any you know, you couldn't comprehend. Well in the, in all that then what's really the role of, of mass media and shit to people, you know, it really is our our uh, our our bank of mm-hmm. images and uh archetypes, you know. Well, it's popular, yeah. popular culture. Yeah, popular culture you know, is now our bank, whereas it used to be probably like the natural world and symbols of animals and all these things. This right. Is our new reality. You know, well, black-eyed kids, you know, people started seeing the black-eyed kids. And I can remember in the 90s that that was a huge motif on television, especially on the X-Files, right? So when like the black oil would infect somebody, their eyes went completely black. And you started seeing that on uh, Supernatural a little later, which had some connections to some of the writers on the X-Files. And so this was very much a popular culture. And then all of a sudden people start seeing children with black, with like the solid black eyes. So Al Berry wrote a book in, I think, 1974 called Bigfoot. And uh, this is sort of the uncle of Where the Footprints End. Um, It's incredible. It's, It's a shame it's out of print. I'd love to get the rights to reprint it because it's a wonderful, wonderful book. And Al Berry, uh, he does not shy away from the weird stuff one bit. In this book, he relates and encounters as a repeat Bigfoot witness, kept having them come around his house, et cetera, et cetera. And then he relates this account of one night these kids show up at this guy's door. So this is 1974. He's writing about this. Okay. And he says, uh, sounds like your typical black eyed kid thing. That they're like, uh, we need help. Our car broke down yeah. seven miles away. Right. Uh, can we use your phone? And uh, he ends up, he, he says, he, like, something about him was off. Their clothes were perfectly clean. There's no way they walked seven miles, you know, in, in uh, the wilderness out there in California, the dusty roads and stuff. So he gives him a dime, I think, you know, I think a phone call with a dime at the time. He, said, he gives him a dime and says, go down to the, the payphone down the way. And he shuts the door remembers right away that he wanted to tell them the light was out in the payphone and ask if they needed a flashlight, opens the door and they're just gone. They're gone right up. You know, they're, they're nowhere to be found. He looks all around for him. They can't find him. As he's telling this, he says, the one thing that really bugs me, I can't remember what their eyes look like. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, 1974, not saying it was, a, but they certainly kind of fit that description. And that's that whole, you got to let him in thing. 
which mm-hmm. is yeah. goes back to vampire lore essentially that you got to oh, let them you got to let them in you know that they, that they can't come in unless they've been invited which is a yeah. very old motif and um one of the things that the there's one story where i think the guys in the army and he's encountering them and they knock on the door and they're just like come in we want to come in we want to come in and read you know what what kids do you know that actually want to come in and read you know <laughs> but it's it, it's it, it but it's i i really think that this phenomenon that it will throw this stuff back to us you know what it reminds me of adam it reminds me of the algorithms it reminds us of the algorithms <laughs> yeah but but, but it just, it's like it just, the algorithms of the demiurge yeah it just throws it just throws back what we think we wanted to see and you know the whole the whole rabbit uh with bunny man um all that aspect you know greg bishop tells this 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 story that he often relates on radio mysterioso where he talks about how this woman that um you know, had this strange encounter and this uh, MUFON investigator basically kind of contaminates what she had first seen. But what she really saw was the, like the six foot tall rabbit inside, outside of her house. Outside I of, believe, you know, it, was, I believe yeah. it was Polka Dot as well. Polka Dot Rabbit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, th- there's something interesting about like the, an- I think, animal, animal symbology as well with some of this stuff well yeah i oh, mean yeah. it's it's the european fertility cult dude i mean just like uh you know the the flannel might be these tartans you know it seems like it's part of the the same you know same old story really which is this european paganism and these things are so like you know rooted in us coming into the new world when we come yeah. here and perhaps even the new world amplifying things because some of kind of re- weird guy in spirit is like more you know it's it, it's it's stronger when we're encountering it as alien rabbits also figure prominently into the bill witch story too there you go by the way the amount of rabbit synchros we had around the time we did the bunny man episodes and there are more coming but is insane after I mean, owls they're probably like the next <laughs> uh i think it's deer, deer. And, oh, then okay, maybe, okay. and then maybe bunny but uh we had i mean so this is uh goes back so we had a pet rabbit our our pet rabbit was named lilac and uh rabbits are very sensitive and they're prey animals and you don't often know they're sick until it's too late and this was the case with lilac and she died a few years back i don't know four or five years ago something like that and we buried her we buried her in the backyard uh, and uh there's a big rabbit statue over her grave uh we also live in an area with a ton of wild rabbits cottontails everywhere and uh I often, I'm the guy in the neighborhood that takes care of them. Like I started because my wife didn't want uh, the kids in the neighborhood to see like a rabbit hit by the car on the road and nobody else was going to do it. So I just started burying other rabbits back there. So there's this sort of rabbit graveyard back there. Shit, it's like pet cemetery. Including lilac. So we're taking a walk. This is like a couple days after we published the first Bunny Man episode, I I think. I'd have to look and see exactly. And, uh we see something in the middle of the alley behind our house and it's a domestic rabbit and uh, it's beautiful, just this beautiful, cute domestic rabbit. So they can't live in the wild, you know? So I catch it and we put it up on a bunch of lists, you know, like lost pet lists and stuff. And nobody claimed it as theirs. So we, you know, we've owned a rabbit before and it's like, okay, well I guess we'll take this rabbit, beautiful rabbit, 
fantastic pet. Just this, it ends up being the kindest uh, rabbit I've ever owned. Just, just this wonderful little, playful, smart, funny, just this great little pet. Um, but we've had her for some time, and Allison decides to look up what kind of rabbit she is. Now we knew she was a mini Rex, which is the same kind lilac was. But she looks it up, and the kind of mini Rex that the new rabbit is, the new rabbit's name is Echo. The kind of mini Rex she is is called a broken lilac, and we found her about seriously less than twenty yards from Lilac's grave. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So then we caught there. There were other domestic rabbits in the neighborhood. We caught two out of the three. The third one's now disappeared. Um, the the second one we caught ha- has been homed. He's got a very nice life. He's already a, a father. So he's he's loving life where he's living now. He's got a great owner who who absolutely loves him. But uh, yeah, these rabbit synchros just start flying left and right when we started doing that. That's why we did the second Buddy Man episode so soon after the first because it was just I was you know I was going to do one down the line and then it was like wow we it's time to do this. Yeah, that's a very appropriate name is Echo. Yes, that's my wife. She, Echo she, and the Buddy Man. Yeah, <laughs> I, I wanted to name it Hobo, but she said no, it has to be Echo. What are some of the uh, most interesting Bunny Man stories that you've that you've had? Yeah, so I'm I'm trying to think if so. One of them was John, who's my sometimes co-host, and he said he was just coming home. At, it was maybe five miles from my house where he saw this, and there's this not Easter time, and he said there's this guy in the field sitting in a in a chair in the middle of a field in a rabbit costume. And he said the guy was illuminated from above. And he, I asked him, I said, what was lighting him up? Do you remember? Was he sitting under a, a light? He's like, I don't remember now. He said, I can't tell you what it was. So that's very interesting, the fact that he was illuminated from above. And, and John can't can't quite remember what was uh, illuminating him. But he was just sitting in the chair, just slowly waving at passing cars. And, uh, you know, I just love that. I got another one that it, we it's like published. Phantom Clown stuff. Yeah, it's, it's very similar. Right. Um, got another one i don't think it's been published yet i think it's upcoming a woman saw a little person in a rabbit outfit in a walmart and she said she she, she said that this walmart was close to her house but she purposely she didn't like it she purposely never went there but for whatever reason this night she went in there and this guy and she said it was all dirty like his suit was all dirty and and uh didn't look you know like like a clean little rabbit suit like all like rough and and stuff. And she said, like, the kids noticed him, but she said it was like none of the adults paid any attention to him. The kids were looking at him and kind of surrounding him a little bit. And she said, you know, she's looking at him and he he notices that she notices her and he's kind of bolts towards her, like, like kind of heads right for her. And uh, she, she goes around a corner or something to just kind of try to avoid him and then goes to look for him again. And he's he's just gone and uh no one's saying anything about the weird little man in the rabbit suit or anything that's weird yeah yeah so it's these you know and these could just be real people and i'm fine with that i have incredibly strange stories of just people in rabbit costumes (laughs) it's fucking terrifying is what it is (laughs) I'm sorry, I don't know if you can say the F word on your show. <laughs> can, I'm going to have to bleep it. Oh, Thanks okay. for that. One minute, sorry. 30 yeah, seconds. Get the timestamp. <laughs> yeah. No. I, 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 I go after that highly valuable iTunes everyone rating. Oh, that's good. We should probably do that too. I should probably timestamp that and bleep it. We don't do it very often. Yeah, we've gotten lazy. I think Bunny Man may be appropriate though. We've gotten lazy about doing that. 
Let's talk a little bit about what you did for your episode 100, which okay. was this powwow doctor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this man, this was fascinating. I, I, you know, I couldn't follow all of it just from, I guess, the age of the recording and like the thickness of the accent. Mm-hmm. I was absolutely fine. Yeah, it. I mean, it, but it was. I mean, it was an amazing, amazing interview. What's the What's the source of this? Where does this come from? And we've so, covered a little bit of powwow before, but I think it's been a while. So let's kind of talk about what powwow is or was. Okay. Well, it's a folk magic tradition. It's a uh, you know kind of faith healing and folk magic. Um, it came from Germany. Uh, it's been most popularized by a book called The Long Lost Friend, which was written by a man named uh, John Homan. Which, before which, I knew you, I never had heard of in my life. <laughs> yeah. He lived in Berks County in the 1800s and uh, published a bunch of broadsides and a few other books. But uh, Long Lost Friend was by far the most popular thing he published. Um, he was a Catholic living in a, in a sea of Protestants, uh, which is very interesting because the powwow for the most part has become a very Protestant tradition. Um, he borrowed from a book called Egyptian secrets, which is, uh, supposed to have been written by Albertus Magnus, but it was not Albertus Magnus did not write that is someone put his name on it. Cause it just sounded real good to have it written by Albertus Magnus, as opposed to, you know, Joe Schmo or, or whoever, of course, um, they, he's been accused of plagiarism a lot in modern times, but you know this is the way things were done back then. Absolutely. You copied, you copied what other people had done, and you collected it, and expand upon it, and you know that's what he did. Uh, so, you know, was it plagiarism? I guess by modern uh, terms, yeah, I guess so. But uh, back then, like I said, it's it's kind of the way things were done. So, I don't think it's fair to judge him through a modern lens at all no no we're all fans of the cut up method and uh sampling around here so there you go we'll have to have a psychic tv conversation one day absolutely uh but um yeah so uh it's it's a tradition it's it's mainly passed um mainly through families usually um, a male would teach a female and so forth and it was passed down family lines but often somebody you know you if your neighbor did it and you wanted to learn how you would learn how to do it. Um, and uh, it's, like I said, it's just these little charms. It's it's a Christian tradition. It's very much based in, in uh, you know, there's there were some books in the 90s, I believe, that kind of tried to say it was like some hidden pagan tradition and stuff. But that's, uh, thankfully, I railed against it at the time. And thankfully, since then, it's been, you know, obviously uh, dismissed that uh, it's not some kind of hidden Wiccan tradition. Yeah. That well, most of, the, most of the religious experimentation in America has been under the umbrella of Christianity, but it was very open and very, you know, a lot larger than had yeah. traditionally been in Europe. Well, is there a certain amount of maybe like, you know, Catholicism being very syncretic? Yeah. You know, yeah. We, we talked about it's too a Protestant. Ago. There's Protestant syncretism too. Right. But you know, you know, that's, you know, we talked about not too long about about uh, Santa Marta and all that, but you know, the, that kind of syncretism and these kind of traditions is kind of like being from like an old kind of like paganism in a way, or just being more open to possibilities of what all these things really mean. Yeah, yeah, I think there's a this modern idea. You know, it's your modern religious pagan who has this idea that that. Every pagan in Europe was was converted by the edge of a sword, and right, I would, right. 
I always point to the Jesuits when they went to Tibet. They had a very, very difficult time. The Tibetans are they're Buddhist, but they're, they're essentially pagans. I mean, they, yes. they, they have a huge number of gods and so forth. Right. And so the Jesuits roll into their, you know, in their, the early part of the 20th century, and they're say they, you know, they bring Jesus with them, and they, you know, they have a statue of Jesus, and they hand it to these guys, and they say, "This is God." And they, these Tibetans, say, "Awesome, great," and they put the statue of Jesus right up there next to the statue of 200 other yeah. gods on the shelf. And the Jesuits were like, but no, he's he's the one God. And they're like, cool, he's the one God. And then the others are the other gods. Well, you know, and they were yeah. they were very very frustrated because they could not, you know, they could not convert these guys. They took it in stride. You know, yeah. they took Christianity in and, stride. And, but, and oh. it requires a certain amount of density to not realize that in Europe at the time it was the same. Right, and that's that, what I'm saying. Yeah, and that, that was, Odin was on hung upon the tree, and that there was all these traditions that were easy to. Yeah, it, this new it was probably with. much more like that than it was, you know, sure, there was yeah, some... Yeah, that was probably easier in Europe than in than in Asia and Tibet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and the other thing is, your general population, just as today, they just don't tend to be that religious. So when you roll in with a new religion, you know, a lot of people are just like, whatever, I'm not, you know... Yeah, I, yeah. I just sure. gotta fucking till this fucking field exactly. all day. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I gotta milk the cows. You, yeah, <laughs> fine, whatever. I'll go there on Sunday. Okay. Yeah. So uh, yeah, so I think a lot of um, pagan culture, you know, did survive, and and you know, I mean, there's a reason why you know most Catholic churches were built where pagan temples were. You know what I mean? Like that, that, that's an absolute reason. Yes. Yes. A lot easier to convert people that way. There's a reason why the the holidays fall, you know, on the the pagan you know, feast days and so forth. It's just, just easier that way. You know, it's just easier to get people on board that way. We're just calling it Christmas now instead of Yule, you know? Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so some of that does come through in the long lost friend. Um, I think a lot of it is though, um, you know, a lot of it has to do with healing. The vast majority of it has to do with healing. There's some stuff and, you know, yeah, protecting it's the most practical application. Yeah. Yeah. There's some stuff to protect yourself from witches and to, and to hunt out witches and uh, protect yourself from nightmare creatures and so forth. Which I guess but, would be be why um, you know scientism and materialism is what dominates now because it it is what will get you healed most of the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess certainly. Yeah, it's it's, it's extremely effective. <laughs> yeah. Um. But, uh, yeah, so, you know, it ends up being this mainly Pennsylvania tradition um, passed through the Pennsylvania Dutch, who were not Dutch. They were German-speaking. Uh, Deutsche, that's what it means. Yes, yeah. exactly. The guy yeah. comes around and says, Deutsche, and he, oh, he's Dutch. <laughs> the long-lost friend does appear in certain pockets of Appalachia, but it tends to be where German populations were as well. So it did make its way, uh, you know, to other areas of the country. But it's here is sort of its, here being south-central Pennsylvania, it's sort of its, you know main uh place where it mainly survived and it, it was never out of print that book's never been out of print here so it's it's been in print since the day homan published it well it's very important just as far as uh population and the colonization of of north america goes um to to understand northern european and germanic people because i think to this day it is the largest ethnic group if you want to you know get really technical in the united states right now you know, mm -hmm. and it's, it's a, I mean, I, I really came to understand it because these are the people who come to Nashville 
You know, <laughs> they are down here on Broadway every night. It's a bunch of cheeseheads and people Minnesota from Wisconsin and Michigan and, and yeah. yeah, I mean, right. that's, you know, so it's like this is, you know, this is this this Volk of, of middle America. And uh, I've had to understand them as an outsider, even though I, I, I have a lot of dramatic heritage, but. You know, it's like really understanding that this is like the bulk of just like population period, just numbers who came to this place. Yeah. And I mean, the Pennsylvania Dutch, even those who don't aren't still German speakers, they've maybe out of stubbornness. I don't know, but they've done a, a pretty good job of, of uh, keeping their folk traditions alive, which which helps as well. Yeah, it's cool. It's really cool. The, the, the fact that we could talk to Allison's mom and she's the one who interviewed this uh powwow doctor for the episode but that she could relate stories about her grandfather powwowing for her you know and so this is you know in her lifetime yeah, yeah. This and still it's, it's not very far removed so this were this interview in and of itself how did this come about she did it for a college class and i forget which one and uh i think it might have been a psychology class i, I forget she she says on the episode for sure what class it was and she asked uh, just some older neighbors if they knew anybody who still did it. And this guy was uh, in the area. That, that's so cool, man. Yeah. We got to really, like, reclaim all this shit because it's not, it's really not too hard to find, man, in your neighbors. Like, Yeah. You, yeah. Well, I, I, uh, I know where the, the farm is for this guy. And I, there's another local lady. And I, I didn't say this on the episode. I, I really regret it. Um, I just forgot. But uh, the farm where this powwow doctor lived is not far from where Allison grew up. I mean, you could easily walk there. And I talked to another woman who's local to the area. She's, I think she's in her 60s or 70s. And she calls me. She doesn't listen to podcasts. I put an ad in the paper at some point uh, just trying to stir up Bigfoot sightings. And I just said, <laughs> have, you, have you seen Bigfoot or anything strange? Give me a call. So that's how she got my number. So she calls me. She's never read my books. She's never heard the podcast, but she loves to tell me these stories. And she has collected these little ghost stories and little kind of urban uh, legends and stuff from the area for her entire life. And she's filled notebooks and notebooks and notebooks with them. So she'll call me once a month, once every other month, and just tell me stories. I absolutely love it. And she tells me the story. She says, you know, in Jacobus, which was the, the area where this power doctor lived, she's like, there was a, a pond there and it was right down this one street. And she told me, and I was like, that's where this guy, Joseph Smith, lived. That's where he lived. And she said, yeah, that pond there, all the powwow doctors in the area used to gather around it. They called it Soup Pond. And uh, I forgot to say that on the episode, that that right next to his house was this pond where she said all the powwow doctors would gather around it. For what purpose, I don't know, but that's what she said. They would they would gather there. Huh. Wow. But it does look Joseph like a little Smith, policy. huh? Philip Smith was the guy's name. Philip oh, Smith. Okay. Sorry, did I say Joseph? I'm, yeah, I, yeah, I think you did. Philip Smith. Yeah, that's my uncle, man. We didn't know there was going to be. A, we didn't know. We didn't know there was going to be a connection to Seraphine's yeah. family here. Yeah, Philip Smith. Sorry. Well, that that is amazing. Uh, is there anybody that that um, practices it today? Yeah, there's a few uh, a few different sort of branches of it. Um, it might all there fall are, on you to document, man. There are a couple people who claim to have gotten it uh, the, the way that people did in the past. That their relatives told them how to do it. I, I don't have any reason to doubt that. Um, 
there are some people who have sort of come upon it in modern times and, and taught themselves through the long lost friend and other sources. And I figure that's probably the way a lot of people learned back in the day. Anyway, that's, you know, the long lost friend was, that's why he wrote it down, you know, so people could have this information. Yeah. And there is would, uh, a group of people that claim to be sort of a powwow brotherhood. I, I it seems very much like, uh, with like secret teachings and stuff. It seems very influenced by the whole, western mysticism you know the crowley stuff yeah. uh the western mystery schools and so forth i don't know i mean they claim they're completely legit and go back to you know for however many is there is there any kind of rosicrucian compounds or anything around the area from these german people which is close to bohemia and some of these places where that tradition might have been uh there are things like it for sure yeah uh, but uh you know in my experience, I, I can only say, like, at least in York County and the people I talked to, in my experience, this was very much a folk tradition. There, it wasn't a secret brotherhood. Mm -hmm. It was a folk tradition. It was for yeah. the people, by the people. Yeah. And it was handed down. It's like, Ameri to, it's like to an American Sufism, man. It's, it's very, yeah. you know, it's very interesting. Well, we, we had um, Mark Stavish on the show last year. And uh, we actually did. We actually got onto that subject because he's up there somewhere in Pennsylvania, I think north of you. And we started talking about the powwow stuff. So he's, you know, he's pretty serious in the occult. I mean, you are. I guess you're familiar with him. Um, I am uh, maybe. I did that. <laughs> Egregores. Yeah, Egregores yeah. book. And right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So he was very familiar with it, but I had, you know, you'd be into it, man. You should check out that book. It's real. Yeah, oh, wow. I had absolutely, I had absolutely no idea about any of this stuff or long lost friend. And I mean, is it is it more of a regional thing to Pennsylvania? Yeah, like I said, it it survived here yeah. more than most places. There's pockets of it in Appalachia, like I said. Um, it tends to be where where so a lot of people move from this area down through West Virginia. Yeah, and, and that's so, just like the mix of of. Uh, Celtic people and Germanic people moving on down south through the ages and everything. Is there something comparable that you could think of? This is going both of you guys. Is there something comparable that you could think of that would be here in Tennessee? I'm sure you have your what, what they call it, your, your granny granny magics or your granny. Uh -huh. yeah. You know, I'm sure I think it's, the hoodoo maybe. Yeah, kind black, of black folks got a lot yeah. of that shit. To it yeah, as well. the, the conjuring hoodoo is is you know related. That tends to yeah, I think uh, it's more Scotch Irish here, which that ain't necessarily my people, but I've been here right. long enough to really understand, you know. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, man, it's, it's it's all over the place. But I think all this stuff that we talked about, you know, tonight really relates to that, and uh, it's, it's just really wild. There's a lot to a lot to learn, and there's a lot of things that we projected on this land that's come back to us and whatever you call it, like whatever it is, it's, it's here. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, uh, I, I do think people bring their folklore with them where they go. And, uh, it might, maybe it combines with, uh, the, yeah, the, absolutely. the folklore, but, uh, uh, the you, people tend to bring their folklore with them. So Tim, you're yes. going to be joining us here in Nashville for our strange realities conference. And you are definitely going to get your, share of tennessee folklore yeah for sure 
I love all folklore. Absolutely love it. Yes, Strange Realities. I'm going to be speaking there. Twice, are, I think, right? Yeah. So what are we going what are you going to be speaking about at our conference? Probably we'll do uh, my talk on the gorilla flap of the early 1920s in Pennsylvania, which is a really interesting uh, kind of article, series of articles, rather, in different newspapers that start popping up in 1920 and go through, I think, late 1921 or early 1922 that feature that people start seeing gorillas all over the state. And you can almost kind of track the the gorillas as they move and i do not believe for a second they're gorillas right um, and you know from newspaper to newspaper these different accounts and you can you kind of track them through the state they kind of start in the uh north middle of the state and they move west and then end up in the southern part of the state very very interesting um they, they kind of end in gettysburg uh which adam's been to before oh yeah the last time i went i was with uh, you and james yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, and it's really neat. Uh, and they're definitely not escaped circus animals. That's what everybody claims they are. But this is during the, a very cold winter in Pennsylvania, and uh, they would not last. No way a mountain gorilla would last through that. So, I'll, I'll do a talk on that. I think it's really, really interesting, and uh, we'll, I'll tell all the reasons why I don't think they're mountain gorillas. And then you and uh, Joshua Cutchin are going to team up, and I believe we're going to do this. This is probably going to be the last. In fact, I'm going to say it's the last presentation of the night, which is going mm-hmm. to be kind of like the, uh, the to cap it all off. Yeah. What's yeah. The, what is that going to be about? We do sort of a general presentation about where the footprints end, and then we get into a little more specific thing. Josh does his wilderness geist or the the uh, wilderness poltergeist talk, equating a Bigfoot phenomenon to poltergeist phenomenon, and I do my one of my personal favorite chapters that I've written in the whole book, I do a talk on Bigfoot in association with these uh, ladies in white or women in white spirits. Mm. Oh yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about that just a little bit briefly. Just sure. A preview. What do, what do you want? What do you, where do you want to begin? Yeah. Well, this association with the ladies in white. So for me, it started with this story on Sasquatch Chronicles. It's one of my favorite stories. I think that's been on there. Uh, the fans know it kind of as the, the two brothers story. It's, it's just these two brothers from Tennessee who live, yeah, live near each other, uh, in a, in a little neighborhood and they start having encounters with Bigfoot creatures, multiple uh, encounters, uh, very, very strange series of events. Um, and they feel like they're really being harassed and so forth. But, they also start noticing this old woman in the neighborhood. And they said she's really, really bizarre. She's, she's like wearing these dirty white clothes. She looks like a homeless woman. They said she was very tall. She was like over six foot. Uh, you know, these Jeremy. ragged kind of white clothes. And they said she was wearing shoes that looked too big for her feet, which uh, was an interesting detail. And they said there was like one ridge where these supposed uh, Bigfoot creatures where it would hang out, you could hear him at night kind of going nuts up there. And they said she walked up towards it and they tried to stop her. They're like yelling at her, like, hey, don't go up there. And, and they thought, like, well, she's dead. Like, those cre- they, they killed her. And they said that, you know, the next morning they see her coming walking down from that same area. Supposedly, so the story goes, one of the brothers walked up to her and tried to get her attention. It said, stop, stop. And she wouldn't stop. She was ignoring her. 
he supposedly says, I command you to stop. And she stops, looks at him and disappears right before his eyes. So it was a very interesting detail. It got me interested in this idea. And uh, I was on the Sasquatch Chronicles forum and I started noticing other people saying, hey, kind of like this flannel man thing. But they're saying, hey, I saw this weird lady. She was this weird, like hag like lady. She was wearing white, like drove up the road, had a Bigfoot sighting. And, and other people were kind of weighing in on this. I'm like, okay, is this a thing? And then uh, Aaron, David, and Kelly start talking about right. on, face, on Facebook yep. that, that mm-hmm. they're seeing this woman in white spirit, or Kelly is. And I was literally going to email them and say, you're about to have a cryptid encounter. When they put up a post that was like, I can't believe it, we had a cryptid encounter. And they saw what you know, may or may not have been a devil monkey kind of meets that yeah. description. Um right after having seen this woman in white and now so now i'm kind of like okay now i'm interested so now i start digging and uh by the way josh thought this was bunk when i started bringing this up he thought there's there's nothing to this and boy is there ever something to this um if you go back you know i mean there's multiple instances from folklore of various big hairy things that uh their wives are women that wear white the the most striking thing I found, though, is this. Uh, she's referred to sometimes as a goddess. I'm not sure if she's actually a goddess, but her name is uh, Frau Perkta from Germanic folklore. And she was said to wear white. She was said she, she would appear as a beautiful maiden or this old hag. She had one or both feet were too big for her body. They were, and they were took the form of a swan's foot. Now, if you get into Bigfoot literature, you will notice that so many three-toed tracks, uh, which is a very, very difficult thing to explain. And uh, a swan's foot, a large swan's foot, would indeed look like a three-toed track, if you imagine a, you know, a bird track like that. Um, so that was interesting. Most interesting of all, though, is like her entourage. Um, Perkta would lure children away and kill them, basically. Um, and these children would appear, their souls would appear as will-o'-the-wisp lights. So you have this orb will-o'-the-wisp phenomenon that surrounds Bigfoot, and here Perkta has that, and then Perkta's other entourage are the Perkton, which are a group of hairy wild men that run around. Beauty and the Beast. Here we have, it's explicitly stated in folklore, and it's and this isn't the only example. There's I have examples from, you know, Roman folklore, from a Russian folklore, all all across the world. It's to the point where if somebody tells me they're wild man, I immediately ask, does his wife wear white? <laughs> because you know all these entities have you know wives, the female version, and they're often white. Uh, and, sometimes it's a creature, but most often it's it's a woman. And let's not go into it too much, but. Um... In the Ape Canyon yes. story, there is elements of this, too. Yeah, so the yeah. Ape Canyon story, that's one of my favorites to point to in the book because that's a that's one of these, uh, you know, go-to legends for uh, Bigfoot people. And one that's been told, I don't know how many times, in Bigfoot literature. And every time I've read it, it's always been about these guys who shoot a gorilla in the woods and then their cabins attacked by a bunch of gorillas that night. They leave out all the weirdness that's associated with that. Uh, Fred Beck, one of the miners who was there, 
wrote a book with his son in the 1960s. So the Abe Canyon attack happens in the 1920s. In the 1960s, he, he writes down the story with his son and he describes what really happened. And it's full of weirdness. Uh, he, they see a ghost of what they call it, a giant Indian, I believe, on their way to look for this mine. They didn't know where the mine was. They didn't know, the, you know what they were looking for. They are told to follow a white arrow in the sky. So, you know, tell me what that is, uh, which will lead them into the wilderness. They follow this arrow. Along the way, they meet a woman whose name was Vander White. And they don't say what she was wearing, but her name was White. Mm-hmm. They, this arrow leads them to the gold mine, which they call the Vander White Mine. They name it after this lady. While they're there, before they ever see creatures, they're hearing weird sounds from the ground. They're hearing disembodied voices. They're finding single tracks in, I think he said it was an acre or two of a sandbar on the edge of a river. He, they found two tracks in the middle of it. And the quote, even at the time, was it looked like something dropped something there and, and picked it up again. So, you know, they're disappearing trackways. They're having the whole gamut of Bigfoot weirdness, which is never reported. It's never reported with this story. They only report the parts that make it sound like a monkey in the woods. And uh, yes, indeed, they do shoot one and they are, the cabin is attacked. But uh, there's all this other weirdness. They're having a ports. They're having, he had at least, I think at least one a port there, uh, a pen or a pencil rather appeared in his hand that he knew, knows was at his house. When he needed it. Um, all this very, very strange stuff is going on around this Ape Canyon incident. And there's also this association with, you know, this Vander White. Now, whether she wore white, we don't know, but that was her name. Let's make a final point here. Um, you and I were, were talking about this not too long ago. A uh, couple of times now, I have been to the Expedition Bigfoot Museum. The first time was with the Paramania group, and I took my dad and my uncle down there about a month or so later. And at the Paramania event, we spoke to, he actually addressed us and spoke about how they are seeing Bigfoot there in Blue Ridge, Georgia. Mm -hmm. And you brought up a very interesting point about that museum. Yeah, and and this is an original idea. Josh related this to me, and I don't know if this was Josh's idea or if, or if he heard someone else say it from when you guys were there, but uh, it made complete sense to me. And uh, they uh, basically build a temple to Bigfoot, you're going to get sightings around it. Yes, of course. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Well, that's what we just talked to uh, a guy a couple Mike, episodes Mike ago. Mike Yeah, and like yeah. he he's pretty materialist, and like he was describing what he was doing, and it was he's an ape in the woods guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was all their behavior was ritualistic. They were doing, yes. you know, sympathetic magic in like a few ways. And like, yeah, of course, something's going to happen. Yep. So I was uh, out at that uh, Mount Bethel ep- uh, cemetery that we did an episode on a couple episodes ago. And there's a ghost hunting group that was there the first first time I was there. And this, I'm talking to this one guy from this group, and he's like, "Yeah, I'm trying to get ghost hair." And I'm like, "All right, tell me more. What are you talking about?" He's like. Yeah, I've I've gotten ghost fingerprints on mirrors I've left out. He's like, so now I'm trying to get ghost hair. I leave combs out to get ghost hair. He said, I used to put powder out, and I, I got ghost footprints. And I looked at him, I said, you know we're doing exactly the same thing, right? He's like, what do you mean? I was like, I'm out in the woods trying to get footprints and hair, yep. from, the, and you're doing the same thing inside. And he says, 
Well, the first thing I do every time is I leave out three shots of whiskey. I say, yeah. You're <laughs> what doing- the f- yeah, yeah. yeah. So you're, you're doing spirit offerings. I yes. Said, folklorically, like, what you're doing is leaving spirit offerings, and then you're collecting this, you know, this material. Afterwards, I said, you know, we're trying to do the same thing. I'm just trying to do it in the woods. Yeah. And it just, what I could tell it did not register with this guy at all. I mean, Southeast Asian Buddhist people are, you know, I see every day when I go to get some Thai food, it's like, they leave out that for Buddha. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. Buddha was trying to get away from this world. <laughs> right. Uh, right. We still leave out milk and cookies for Santa. It's, you know. Yeah. I, yeah. You, le- I, you build a, a museum, which is essentially really a temple. Yeah. Absolutely. And then people start to see it. Yeah, you've made a temple to Bigfoot. You're you're literally collecting his poop, like you know, yes. and putting it in there. I, I have seen it, and it's and it's quite impressive. Yes, yeah, and uh, you know, not to mention the footprints and the hair and all the pictures and and I mean, it's just, it's a celebration of Bigfoot. I've yeah, heard nothing but good things about it. Yep. Heard nothing but good things about it. But yeah, you've you've built a temple to Bigfoot. You're going to get sightings around it. So Tim, you are going to be with us on October nineteenth. Of this year, yeah. Give all Nashville, the details Tennessee. for that for the strange familiars people. Give, give all the details. Okay, so October nineteenth, twenty nineteen, we are going to be here in Nashville, Tennessee, at SIR Nashville, which stands for Studio Instrument Rentals. We're going to be renting a room there. We have several guests on, uh, which includes the person that we're speaking to right now, Timothy Renner, and also Joshua Cutchin is going to be there he's going to be presenting and he's going to be presenting with you and we've got tim banal i have mark anthony wyatt who is a um one of our favorite guests he's from he's from england although he spends a lot of time here in the in the in the states and he's going to be talking about some of his personal experiences and some of the folklore out there in uh, cornwall england and i've got um Zach Hunt, who just uh, came on our show not too long ago. Uh, now, he's more of like a kind of a liberal Christian author. He's going to be talking about the uh, about the rapture. And I am going to actually be presenting, too. Um, hey, I'm going to be doing... Debut. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be doing something about um, alien abduction and mind control stuff. Nice. Is what I'm going to be doing. Um, so I'm, that's... And uh, also our good friend Joe, Joe Damari, he's going to be presenting how to find ghosts with his technology. And uh, it's going to be it's going to be a good time, guys. We really want you to come. I mean, it's only it's only 30 bucks if you prepay. If you go to strangerealitiesconference.com, you can prepay on there. That's for the weekend. Forty dollars. Yeah. And that's that's it's forty dollars at the door. But it's thirty bucks if you prepay, and uh, we're gonna have just like basically. Like, I'm gonna probably do some like I think paranormal trivia. I've got my cousin we're coming down. To, we're trying to put together a midway where you can sit in an orgone accumulator. Yeah, we might have an orgone accumulator, a, a dream nice. machine, also. And yeah, we're definitely gonna have plenty of terror readers and yeah i've at least uh, got two of those at this point um and maybe have some mystical organizations from from around town representing themselves yeah yeah so um it's going to be a good time guys and we're going to have like a big after party with uh 
plenty of people that have uh, gonna be playing music, and uh, we're just gonna have a good time. I think Seraphiel is gonna be doing something music-wise. I think. I think so. I think yeah. so. So we, we we won't reveal too much of that at the moment, but uh, it's it's just that one day. It's pretty much is gonna start about ten o'clock, and it's gonna last all the way till probably about midnight that night. And our question and answer session, I am going to be doing a live podcast recording. So that's what that's going to be. And I'm going to be moderating that myself. Cool. So we know uh, Strange Familiars is going to be there. We know Conspiracy Normal is going to be there. Mm-hmm. We know Josh Cutchin is going to be there. We know Tim mm-hmm. Banal is going to be there. All these folks are going to be there. There's also, I mean, some of the guests from Strange Familiars, I don't know if they want to be revealed, but they've already said they're coming. Yeah, uh, people you know, so you would not just get to meet the creators, but you'll awesome. get to meet some of the people that have been we've, on the show. We've got synchro mystical tours for everybody, and we've got uh, Nashville has a lot of good food, hot chicken and soul food to offer. So we'll all you know get real fed and have a good time. Yeah, October is a really good time to come down here. the The weather is absolutely perfect, um, so we'd really like you guys to come if you if you can make it. I will be. I'm getting on a plane for the first time since the year 2000. Yes, you are. You're getting on a plane for the first time since the year 2000 to come down to party so with us in Nashville. That's how special this is. I yes. would not yeah. do this for just anyone. Thank you, Tim. And we've been we, avoiding we, planes for 19 years. Yeah, I will be there at the airport to pick you up. All right. <laughs> you can go straight into Adam's arms. <laughs> <laughs> Tim, uh, tell us everybody. Tell everybody where they can find you, where they can get your get your books, and uh, find the podcast. Well, strangefamiliars.com is going through some growing pains, but we'll be back up and running soon. If you go there and it looks wonky or incomplete or something weird, don't worry. Keep trying. We'll be back real soon. Um, I'm a one man show here. I got to do everything, including build a website. We can so, relate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm in the middle of getting that settled. That will be back, and once that's settled, strangefamiliars.com is the best place to contact me. All the contact information there goes to me. You can find my books on Amazon. Just look up Timothy Renner. I've got four of them. Don't Look Behind You is the newest. Bigfoot in Pennsylvania, Bigfoot West Coast Wild Men, and Beyond the Seventh Gate is my first book. And uh, two more coming with Josh, hopefully uh, sooner than later, or Josh will smother me when I'm down there. And guys, um, for the Strange Familiars listeners, you can find us at conspiranormal.com. We are starting up and we've got a new episodes page where you can find all our episodes. We are on iTunes. We are on Stitcher. We are on Google Play. We are on everywhere podcasts are. We are also on YouTube. And you can you can find us there as well. And um, often you will see also hear us on Where Did the Road Go as well. So um, we are... We are everywhere. Right. Like a whistle. Conspiranormal.com, conspiranormal.podomatic.com. That is where you can find our archives. Going back to uh, 2012. Way before me. Way before Sarfiel, yeah. Swapcast complete. Uh, Tell tell the demiurgic bureaucrats to close the doors. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys. We're going to close out this section, and uh, we will be back to close out on Conspiranormal. And Tim, if you'd like to give your spiel, go ahead. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. Stay tuned for more Strange Familiars. Awesome.
tag on my earth to test my Well, I noticed that you've been listening to your ways to achieve success. And that you're starting your Fortune 500 company. Yeah, I'm trying to hypnotize myself into success. So, we've got a sponsor called, you may have heard of it, called ZipRecruiter. No, I've never heard and of it. you can further hypnotize yourself into success. And if you want to help us and help the show and ZipRecruiter, on behalf of our partner ZipRecruiter, here's why ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience, and actively invites them to apply to your job so you get quality qualified candidates fast. It's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. Thus, rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. And right now, if you go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Conspiranormal, you can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Conspiranormal. And keep listening to your self-help records. Hey, that was pretty cool, man. I think... Uh, yeah. Can you do some backmasking? Yeah, of course. All right, so... ZipRecruiter.com slash Conspiranormal, guys. Check it out. I It's been a couple hours or something like that. Yeah. And uh, like we, we are back to uh, close out this episode of Conspiranormal. So that was a very interesting interview. I guess we were doing a swap cast with Tim. I think so. From we Strange Familiars. Pod swapping. Pod swapping. Yeah, we're, we're, we're trying to do a lot of pod swapping lately. Yeah. So uh, what were your thoughts about that, uh, about that interview, man? Uh, we got really deep into uh, a lot of places where people fear to tread. Yeah, I believe I believe so too. I was uh, I was I was pretty impressed by that. A lot of uh, interesting information, and Strange Familiars is probably one of my favorite podcasts right now. If you guys have not listened to it, Same go here. go to strangefamiliars dot com, check it out. Tim is a really uh, really good host, and a lot of the stuff that that he talks about on there is mostly people's personal stories, mm-hmm. which I think he's really doing a good job of collecting some some of this uh, material. And uh, I think he honestly could really at this point could almost turn some of that into a book. Yeah, I mean he's so, like an archive right now. Yeah, he really is. I mean he's he's uh over a hundred episodes at this point, and uh, Tim talks about anything from a lot of it's flannel man. There's a lot of flannel man stuff there, but he talks about anything from the kind of like uh, folk traditions to folk magic to actually going out to places and and talking to uh, two different people that are having experiences and then actually going out himself you'll you'll hear a lot of different kind of um field recordings and that type of thing that he's that he's doing that i think is really really cool that's from, uh, from a more paranormal angle right exactly so then nuts and balls bigfoot nuts and balls yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i think that's actually pretty appropriate i think the nuts and balls bigfoot so uh guys um as we mentioned before, 
We are doing this conference here in Nashville on October 19th. We are going to be pushing this till you are sick of hearing about it. But please, if you are interested, please come join us on that date for the Strange Realities Conference. Strange Realities. And I'll list some of the people that we have. We've got Tim Banal, Joshua Cutchin, Joshua Cutchin, Joe Damari, our good Joe friend Joe, Demario. and uh, Guy Malone, Guy Malone. Uh, Timothy Renner, Timothy who Renner. we just spoke to, uh, Mark Anthony Wyatt, Mark Anthony Wyatt, and just recently added Zach Hunt. So it's going to be Hunt. quite a um, quite an event. We're really looking forward to it. Live music at the end of it. And I'm going to be speaking there. And I think Serfiel is going to be doing some kind of musical thing. Something. Something that he's that he's going to do. So that's uh, October 19th. Please come join us. It's 30 bucks at 30 bucks online. It goes up $10 more at the door. So, guys, you're going to be paying $40. And... But uh, thirty dollars if you get it. So we do have limited space for this, guys. We only have we can only fit about a hundred people in that room. So and con- contact us if you have any questions about the town, or you got an Airbnb, you want to check out the neighborhood, or anything like that. Right, We're definitely here to help. Yeah, you can get in touch with us at conspiranormal uh, conspiranormal at gmail dot com, and you can uh, you can also maybe leave a message on YouTube or on the Patreon or whatever. So, uh, Sophia, I'll tell everybody about where they can find our Patreon if they want to support the show. You can go to patreon.com slash conspiranormal or make a one-time donation at conspiranormal.com. Yeah, and I may be doing some different things with that. I'm thinking I want to do try to get like a PayPal.me link for people that want to do one-time donations. Yeah, we should I think a lot of people want to do that lately um, instead of doing like – because some people are concerned about the recurring stuff. Yeah, me too. Which we totally, which we totally understand. So Just throw five dollars. That's right. So, guys, uh, you know, next week uh, we're going to have another roundtable. I don't really know what to expect from this, but uh, a lot of fun. The way this kind of came about was that uh, we wanted to do this woke in the '90s. We really wanted Greg Bishop to be there, but yeah. he wasn't able to be there, so we did it on the 20th. And we've got Tim Banal going to join us, and Robert Guffey, oh, and uh, Justin Cancellari may be joining us too. Oh, so man. this may be a complete pile on. We're not sure, but uh, we've got yeah. some great shows in store for you guys coming up in the next couple of months. And uh, that's it. I think uh, we'll close out the show here. So join us next week, guys, for another roundtable edition on Conspiranormal. StrangeRealitiesConference.com. channel.